The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 373. My name is Chris. And my name is Noah. Hey, Noah, guess what? Big show today. So the audience out there heard us mention it last week, the YubiKey. It is a hardware device that promises to make your SSH logins more secure, easier, and obviously more automated. We'll talk about the YubiKey today and how you can get started with it and why you might want to make it part of your daily routine. And also, maybe a few other ideas for your SSH hygiene. And then in the news segment, we're going to get down to the details about the NSA using Red Hat to spy on the United States of America. OpenSUSE has some huge changes coming up, and perhaps Perhaps number 42 has the answer to all of it. And also, Canonical has some big news when it comes to Lenovo laptops and VirtualBox. It's not dead. The rumors have been greatly exaggerated. We'll tell you about the new features in version 5.0. And of course, in the feedback segment, we've got some great emails from the audience. But first, Noah, before all of that in today's episode, it is... The picks. The picks. And uh, I, I, <laughs> this, this first pick this week, I'm ready. I, I'm, not, I'm not Mr. Health over here, Noah. I'm going to be the first person to admit that. I could use a personal trainer in my life. But the thing is, I don't like people. You know, humans. Yeah, no, I just can't stand them. And uh, I'm ready for the robots to take over, but I just don't want it to run proprietary software. You're ready for the robots to take over. That's rich coming from you. Every other time we've talked about robots on the show, (laughs) you freak out about how robots are going to kill you. Look at that thing. That thing's going to chase you. That thing's going to, that is going to eat you as you're, as you're walking up to get your Cheerios in the morning. Yeah. Well, that's actually true for this one too, because guess what? No, your new personal trainer runs Linux. That's right. It's a robot. Um dia o Visi poderá ser um dos melhores amigos dos humanos ou pelo menos pode tornar-se um dos primeiros personal trainers personal robóticos trainer, que vão ajudar a terceira idade a fazer exercício. Agora, quando vocês vejam o vídeo aqui, Noah, se você olhar bem, não é tão grande um mistério. A coisa é apenas um full-fledged PC. Abaixo do seu belly é seus guts. É um ATX motherboard, é um ATX power supply, é um full-fledged Linux rig. Agora, eu estava fascinado por isso, mas, como você pode ter notado pelo vídeo, Noah here, there's a bit of a uh, language barrier. But I was still fascinated by what's going on here. And it turns out this is a research project by Carnegie Mellon. And uh, there's quite a bit of information online about it, including the entire damn source code to this entire thing. It's called the Visi Robot. And it's the tools you need to get with the Visi Robot are available up on GitHub. It's based on Ubuntu. Well, it actually depends on which version you want to go with. You can go with Ubuntu 14.04. That's the latest version. But they also, the one that is most in production right now, is based on Ubuntu. Ubuntu 12.04. So everything you need is available on GitHub. You download this thing, and Noah, check this out, man. With a couple of uh, bash commands here. Look at this, Noah. You're, you're like, look, look. Here, you, okay, so you check it out. You, you, you get clone, the Visi robot stuff. You edit the bash RC. You build it, and then you run right here. Within three steps, you have the entire operating environment you need to run your own robot based on Ubuntu 14.04. Can we take a look at uh, one minute into the video? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let me pull that up. Why? Is there something there that's, uh, that's juicy? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, think th- I, think, I, 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 I think that's where we'll see the Linux. Ooh, you got a little Linux sighting, huh? Yeah, okay. All right. Here, yeah. I'll, here all right. Let me pull this up. So one minute, one minute and uh, here, I'll, uh, I'll jump ahead. I like the music track they got with this. We should, uh, we should yeah, find it's out. Very, it's, it's, like, it's, like, it's very modern and, and makes you want to like groove out. Have you ever played, there's a, there's a really good Android game that's like, uh, um, you break where you break, you break glass, and it sounds just like this. Uh, here we go, here. Here's about a minute in right here. 
So uh, hold on, it's buffering. Oh yeah, oh it's oh yeah, oh yeah. Look at that, look at that. Here, I'll pull so up the audio. See what they say. Unity there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And there's the PC. Right there. And you can see it has a three. It has a two wheels on the side and two wheels on the front and back. <coughs> and Noah, one of the other things they're experimenting with this son of a gun is uh, using the Microsoft Connect hooked up to a Linux rig to get 3D imaging of the room. Just taking the Connect to use as a main sensor to see what this thing's doing. Isn't that cool? I'm glad to hear that the Connect works with Linux. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a lot of scientific projects going on under Linux and the Connect right now. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah people have been working hard on that. Yeah, so uh, so the source code's available on GitHub. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then also, uh, here's a picture of it for those of you watching the video version. And if you look right here, this there's the power supply. There's the ATX power supply. There's a Cat5 hub right there, uh, you know, and there's a wireless uh, access point right there. And then back in here is the motherboard and the uh, connectivity. It's a really cool little unit, all running Linux. And it can help, all, it can help you uh, become more uh, fit. Honestly... I, if if I could go to a like a to a gym and have like a discounted rate to have this as a personal trainer, I actually would do that. I would do that today. Yeah. I would try it. Like, you know, because I, I figure it's probably like what, kind of like having an app on my phone only better. Yeah. Yeah, my problem with the gym has always been I never know what to do once I get there. Like, there's all these people, and they seem to have, like, the whole routine down. Know, and I'm right? just like, I'm walking around, and I'm like, so is there, like, a how-to somewhere? Yeah. Do we have, like, a quick start <laughs> guide? Or is there, like, <laughs> yeah. is, like there, is there a how-to.html somewhere laying around I could get a hand? Mine's always on, like, or? so you're all just getting naked? Like, you're all just going to go shower? Like, I thought we had a big society. Oh, yeah, no, I, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, that wouldn't See, now, be me either. This is what I don't understand about the gym is like all of these issues we have in society about the male body and being naked around people and like, you know, you can't have females be topless. You can't guys, you know, can't like all this stuff. And then you go to the gym, all bets are off. Like everybody gets to be naked. Everybody gets to shower and soap each other up around each. I'm not about that. No, I'm not about that. So if I could get this unit, if I could put it here in the house and I could do a little exercise here at the house with a personal quote unquote trainer that's a Linux powered robot. I'm gonna yeah. give that a shot. <laughs> Here's the thing: I, I can. I, I, the the showering thing is just it's an easy off. I'm just not gonna shower at the gym. Like I'll I'll drive home sweaty and I'll just I'll shower there. That's perfect. I'm perfectly okay with that. I understand, though. I understand, but I don't like you stinking. So if you're in my neck of the woods, yeah. I want you to shower up. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now this is why you need this is why you need a Linux powered robot to help you train in your house. That way you avoid all of these issues. And let's be honest, we all prefer to stay in our basements. Right? I would. Right. I would just, well, in this case, it'd be my garage. I'd work out with a robot in the garage. I'd get a couple pieces yeah. of equipment. I'd have a Linux-powered robot. And I, I honestly would go out there and work out with this thing. Now, of course, it no, has... I'll be very honest with you. I bought a treadmill with the with the intention of working yeah. at my house. Yeah. It makes an excellent coat rack. I'm really happy we invested all that money in the treadmill. And I feel like the robot would be the same thing. I'd buy it for a personal trainer, and he'd be like, hey, look, you can get me a beer from the fridge. Look what I did. I can program it to get a beer from the fridge. <laughs> I can program it to vacuum the house. Like, And then I would get all, and then I would get sidetracked with that. Yeah, I'd I totally like, oh, do. You're right. And then I'd be like, hey, Noah, hey, could you send me those files you did to patch that thing to get a beer? Because I'd like to have my robot do yeah. that, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I tell you what, I'll upload it to GitHub. You you can fork it, and then you can make changes. <laughs> That's exactly how it go down. Yeah. All right. Well, or you know what else? You could also host it on your own GitLab, up on your own DigitalOcean droplet. Screw GitHub. Screw going out on the public web. Build your own cloud up on DigitalOcean. Go to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code. You ready for this? It's a promo code of knowledge. 
Last Digital. Last Digital, all one word, lowercase, to give you a $10 credit. <laughs> now, I know what you're thinking. $10, Chris? What's that? Actually, over DigitalOcean, it's an amazing amount. It's two months absolutely free of DigitalOcean. Last Digital. Now, DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. Now, I'm going to take what they just said there, and I'm going to spin it a little bit for you. DigitalOcean is the best place to have a machine that's powered by Linux and KVM that has incredible performance. It's all backed by SSDs, and they have some of the best connectivity on the Internet. And if you want to have a Linux rig powered by a company that uses Linux throughout their entire infrastructure and have HTML5 access to the machine, that's DigitalOcean. So use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. You can go deploy an Ubuntu rig, a Fedora rig. But if you're not, I mean, you could use it in production, but if you're not familiar with it, Take the, take the two months, use our promo code LASTDIGITAL, and try out CoreOS. I, I think CoreOS is a huge deal. And, I mean, if you want some proof of that, <clears throat> look at DockerCon from, like, three weeks ago. CoreOS came up, and within under a year, un, with under a year, they got Red Hat, VMware, Docker, Cisco, all these, co- Amazon, Microsoft, all these companies to come together and agree on a common spec for containers under Linux. There's a reason for that. Being able to update the underlying OS and keep the applications isolated and protected and performing the way you expect, that is going, that, that's obvious. And that's the way for CoreOS is all about that. You can go up to DigitalOcean right now. Use the promo code LASTDIGITAL and try out CoreOS for a little while. Deploy your applications on. And, and it's going to be obvious why, why Red Hat and CentOS and OpenSUSE, and we're going to talk about that more in the show today, why they're all moving this direction. It's going to be obvious to you once you use CoreOS. And if you use the promo code LASTDIGITAL, why not? Because there's no risk. It's two months free, no credit card required. Go to digitalocean.com, use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. Now, they also have free BSD. They have Ubuntu LTS. They've got Fedora. They've got Debian. You can go deploy on production environments right now. Noah and I do that all the time. Noah, how many droplets do you have, do you think? Do you have a rough I've, number? Uh, yeah, I've, I've lost count. I know that they had, a, uh, they had a, a limit of 25, and I requested that they increase that and got my limit increased to 50. Um, but I spin up droplets like this week. Uh, I, we were recording the segment for the show, and I needed to demo an example on a server. Well, that would have involved ordinarily me going downstairs, yeah. finding a spare one, putting yes. it into a rack, finding yes. it. Finding, you got to find all the cables and plug them all in, and then you got to find a hard drive. and stuff. No, I went over to digitalocean.com. Yep. I spun up a droplet. I clicked on it. In fact, it, it happened so fast and I used it and got done with it so fast, I forgot why I spun it up in the first place or even what I named it. Yeah. I had to log in this yeah. morning and look and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I did that. I forgot about it because it doesn't cost me anything. Yeah. And you can do uh, hourly spin-ups, which is w- what this particular one was. So I'm not paying that monthly fee. I- I'm just u- I- I'm using it for a little bit, mm-hmm. and, then, and then I'm done. Yeah. And I only pay for that. It's so fast and so easy. I prefer to do it over spinning up a virtual machine on my own local box. Because you can get started in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start only $5 a month. We'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And here's my favorite part, too. DigitalOcean's got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and Germany. And the one in Germany has got 40 gigabit E connections to each hypervisor. They're fastest SSDs yet. And here's what I love about this. I look like a baller. I look like I've got infrastructure in all of the major important points in all of the West. Like, if you, if you speak English, you get a fast download when you download one of the unfiltered supporter components. I look like I'm some sort of baller with a massive infrastructure. My secret is DigitalOcean. I use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. I save $10 a month. And then, when DigitalOcean rocks their amazing interface, which is the best interface for managing a virtual environment I have ever seen in the last 15 years, seriously. And it's web-based. 
I don't know how the hell they did it. I thought if you would have asked me the best, I said I would have said no. It has to be a native GTK application. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. not. It's not it because is five interface. years ago when we didn't have when we didn't have VPS space, that yeah. is that that's what you would have thought right. you would needed yes. to to leverage council control of yes. the computer with without having to have like Java or ActiveX mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. the crap that I would have had plugin I would have to have installed. No, it's all right there. And plus now with their one click installations, you can deploy things like GitLab, like I mentioned just a bit ago, or Ruby on Rails or WordPress or the entire LAMP stack. And then, of course, when you do something like the LAMP stack, it's like based on Ubuntu LTS, and you're subscribed to the Ubuntu LTS repos, so you're going to get all of the updates. So you're going to get a consistently patched, secured system. And they have local repos, so them downloads, they download crazy fast, and they have so many great tutorials, they're even hiring to have editors, and they even have open positions. Check out their open careers. Go to DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code LASTDIGITAL, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. It's just, like, so, so, so awesome now to have Linux infrastructure on demand as a Linux user after all of these years as somebody who, like, if I'm going to deploy something, I'm going to deploy it on Linux and not have to roll that on my own infrastructure every single time anymore. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Last digital. Thank you, DigitalOcean. All right, Noah, let's get into our desktop epics. And I, you know, YubiKey, it made me think of security a little bit. And mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of have a desktop app pick that matched that theme. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I have not really used this next app pick for myself a lot, but I have used it a lot for communicating with other people. Um, wow. uh, there was a Windows user uh, who... Uh, it was, a, it, was a, it was a producer that we had worked with at one point who used Windows, and I needed to send him a whole bunch of text files, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of markdown files. It was, like, it was like 55 megabytes of markdown files that if I compressed it, it compressed down to like 350 kilobytes. But it was confidential, so I wanted to encrypt it, I wanted to secure it, and he wasn't super savvy. So I wanted him to be able to have a self-extracting file on his Windows box, even though my machine was a Linux box. Right, so there's a mm-hmm. lot of moving parts here. I want it encrypted, I want it self-extracting, and I want something that's got a GUI so that way I can be lazy. And so that's where I found PZIP. It's PZIP, and it's really, really nice because it lets you basically compress to any of your favorite formats. I like 7-zip, but of course it does gzip, rar, tar, zip, uh, and of course it can also unrar, and it has packages available for Windows. I, it may have, even have a Mac version, I'm not sure, but it definitely has a Linux version. And under Linux, it can, co- and it can, can create a self-extracting archive. <clears throat> With fairly good comp- uh, encryption, which I'm I'm kind of a fan of. It's a, it's also available. Another thing I like in Qt or GTK. So depending on your desktop flavor, you get one, and it's also available in the Arch user repository. So without further ado, I'll show it to you. So here is the GTK version, and I'm looking at my picture files right now. So I've browsed. You might you might be familiar if you've seen any of the other proprietary file compression like you know zip. So I've selected a few files right here, and I can go ahead and I can create a new archive. And what I love about this is here's an example of. Uh, I could say where I want to put it. So I'm just going to say, let's say, uh, dirty pictures, even though they're just Star Trek pictures. Dirty pictures.zip, right? <coughs> now, it doesn't have to be a zip file either. It could be anything from a tar GZ to a 7-zip, or how about this one, a self-extracting 7-zip file or a self-extracting ARC file. Now, this is extremely nice when you're dealing with basic Windows users, right? Because maybe I want to have this password protected, but I don't have... I don't have a lot of reliability on the other end of my reception. It's not going to be the best protection possible, but if my end user is a Windows user or my end user is a Linux user, this is an, am- this is an amazing application. It's PZIP. It's a great way to set up a self-extraction archive that extracts on their own end that can be password protected or can use a key file. It can use a key file, too, which is really nice. 
and uh, I love it. It's a it, there's the it, I, I I mostly use the built-in uh, desktop environment uh, extraction tools and um, compression tools, but really Noah, if you want something that works across multiple desktops, so. You and I often advocate if you're going to move somebody over from Windows to Linux, but you want to give yeah. them, but you want to give them a really good tool. Mm-hmm. This is a perfect one. So one of the things I like a lot about PZIP is it pulls in different types of encryption depending on what you want to do. And so whatever, like, I don't know if I would rely on this um, for like the Snowden files, yeah. but you know, if it's like, you know, if it's if it's a picture of my dick. I'm not I'm not as concerned because I mean first of all it's a pretty impressive dick but second of all like you know if you want to really look at that you can so I will use I, I would be I would be comfortable using the encryption and the compression built into PZIP uh, it's it's PEA zip it's open source and it's available in Qt GTK and command line for available also for BSD Windows and maybe the Mac I'm, I'm not quite sure on that have you ever tried it I have not I so um, I have. I used to be concerned about raw files and, and zip files and stuff. When I, back in the day when I had to move things at 1.4 megs because they had to fit on a floppy, mm-hmm. at that point I was concerned about rawing everything up and then dividing it out into different parts and, and moving thing o- things over. Nowadays, everything I do is, is, is in a tar.gz, and everyone from a Windows perspective is, is putting things into a zip file, and of course I can unpack or repack either of those on Linux, but where this shines out to me is the encryption part yes. of it is this seems like it, it this seems like what this could be is a mediocre replacement for TrueCrypt, at least in in the basic sense of keeping the honest people honest. You got it, man. You got it. that's exactly that's exactly why I love it. Uh, you nailed it, and it, and it's it's actually fairly good encryption, and it uh, you know, it's not very draconian about the implementation. It's here's the three boxes, answer these three questions, and then you yeah. send it to somebody, and then you hear, and then you know, like for you and I, what I would do is I would send you the file, and I'd be like, hey man, here's the password, and that's yeah, done. that's all we really need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Noah. So that's a, that's sort of a security desktop app pick. Now, all of us have a creative side. After we get super serious about our security, we got to unwind and enjoy a little bit of music. Now, no, I love this one because this is actually one that you use from time to time. It's called Hydrogen. Yeah, so I, uh, uh, a hobby is, uh, I've, I've been kind of involved in, in music my whole life. I, I kind of grew up with it. And, uh, and so a lot of that has moved over to, uh, you know, composing uh, electronically or at least recording electronically and one of the n- nice things is is, is if, if you're putting a piece together you want to put something the, f- the first thing you need is is a good beat and uh, you can go and, and and lay down a track on an electric drum set or if you really want to spend some time mic an acoustic drum set it's a lot easier to use a sequencer and of course if I'm going to do it it's going to be done on Linux so I actually was playing with hydrogen and and I've used it from and it's not the first time I've used it but I was using it again this week and I'm like why haven't we talked about this on the show? This yeah. is actually a really great sequencer. And the, the thing that separates a good sequencer from a from a great sequencer, in fact, really what separates a, a, a good sequencer from a usable sequencer for me is the ability to subdivide into very, very small increments. So a lot of sequencers will top out at, at uh, I've seen some of them top out at sixteenths of a note, and that is that's barely even usable. Um, you want to go all the way up to thirty seconds, and I think hydrogen will do sixty fourths. Uh-huh. Um, so you can you can you can you can you can subdivide up those notes, uh, which obviously expands the amount of flexibility that the sequencer has, and uh, you can do things like triplets and and, and all those things. Um, and actually, the demo you have, the guy actually does a really good job of of laying down some pretty sick beats. Yeah, and he's got some nice plugins too that work with this application as well. Which is really nice. The Calf plugins. This so this is so like if I want like a nice beat or something like that. This is like it's not quite like GarageBand or what is this, Noah? 
Yeah, well, yeah. So it's if it, let's say let, okay. So let's say you want to let's say you want to compose a piece of uh, of electronic music. The first thing you need is is a beat, and so this is how you would generate that. And uh -huh. once you have this sequence, you can export this out and bring it into something like LMMS and use LMMS to to you know to to add and layer. Or if you if you're doing if you wanted to do quote unquote traditional music, you could export the beat from uh, Hydrogen out and bring it into something like Audacity or. Um, or Ardour, yeah. and then record on top of that if you had an electric guitar or an acoustic guitar or, or something like that. Um, but but the nice thing about a, a sequencer over actually recording uh, over recording a beat is so a drum beat is going to be a lot of times the same thing, very repetitive over yeah. and over and over again. Yeah. And if if you're a drummer, then you have to you have to get that right all you know whatever 64 <laughs> measures yeah. yeah with this i get it right one time in the computer and i just repeat and yeah. then i add a fill in there and yeah. it gives you the option to add you can cycle between uh different sequences so if you have one sequence that's that's your actual beat and then if you have another that's a fill and then you go back and maybe you had a bridge you can have all of those identified and then you can just click through them and it'll play one play one play one then you say after 16 measures of this then i want one fill then i want the bridge then i want to go back into the main beat and i want that for another 16 measures while i do verse two and and you can you can sequence all that out and, and it, it takes a matter of minutes um is a super cool useful piece of software and it deserves some attention yeah it definitely does deserve some attention and uh they just had a post up uh, uh well they've been a while since they have any posts up but uh, go over to a uh, hydrogen-music.org we'll have a link in the show notes if you want more and give them a little attention and let them know we appreciate a project like this on the linux desktop this example this is a this is the perfect example of something we'd like to spotlight in the open source project to let you guys know Sometimes, you know, we get a bit of a stereotype out there about what's available on the Linux desktop, and then you see something like this, and you're like, holy crap, that's way cooler than I realized the Linux desktop even had available for it, and we need to support projects like this. So you'll find a link in the show notes. They have a call out right there about 14 different ways to contribute to the project, and they haven't had a post in a long time since then. So let's give them a little love and see if maybe they can keep developing this amazing piece of software for the Linux desktop. But Noah, with the picks all done, that's, you know what that means. We're all done with that. It's time for the news. Hey, it's the news, and this episode is brought to you by... Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com. That way you get the Linux Action Show discount, and you let them know that uh, you appreciate them supporting the Ting Show. Hey, Noah, you got a phone on you right now? Of course I have a phone on me. I have my uh, my Galaxy S4. Of course, ah. that's activated on Ting. But the newest phone in our house from Ting is actually my wife's Moto G2. Um, so oh, nice, she, dude. She killed her phone for the last time. She plugged in a charger. I don't know. I don't necessarily blame her. My daughter likes to plug things in, but of course she doesn't get the USB port right, and so she just like jams it in any which way she can. Oh no. Um, so my wife went to plug her phone in, and she pulled it out, and actually it she gave her, got a blister. It was so hot. The charger was. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. So I look at her phone, and sure enough, her phone is no longer able to charge. And then, wow. you know, a couple hours later, it just died. So I, I went on Ting.com, looked for the a phone that I could get as quickly as possible. Yeah. Of course, this has to happen over the 4th of July weekend, so it's going to be a delayed shipping. <laughs> oh, I hadn't heard about um, this. <laughs> but Ting, Ting got it out. They got it out right away. Um, so she got her Motorola G2. It came in on, on Tuesday, I think. Um, that's a great pick. How did, how did you decide the G2, by the way? 
Well, so she doesn't do anything even remotely uh, powerful on her computer. She uses it for contact. She uses her Kindle and she makes phone calls and, and, and Telegram. And that is it. So she could get away with the, the, uh, the least powerful uh, smartphone. The problem is I want something that has good build quality. And yeah. when I have to use it to set something up, I don't want to sit there and wait for a crappy processor or, or really slow uh, phone to, to load or yeah, to work. It's frustrating so for you as the person having to work on it. Right. So the Motorola G2 ships with Lollipop. Yeah. Um, it has a Snapdragon. Yeah. And it, it, it actually, it's a really nice phone. Well, like, it and came like in, it was, the build quality of the build quality of the Moto G yeah. alone feels like it's worth all of the price. Like, you're like, what's left? Like, I feel like I, all of the price I paid for this, because what? It's, it's under 100 bucks, isn't it? For, 200, it's 200. It's oh, 279. Okay. Okay. Maybe it's even cheaper than that, I think, because I got expedited shipping. So oh, I think you know, the total no, you know price is 170 is, bucks. You can, get the first, you can get the first gen Moto G for 91 bucks from Ting. And what's, what's the second one? I think the second one is like 129, yeah. and then I paid for overnight shipping so yeah. uh, but the when when i pulled it out it feels almost identical to the nexus even in that yes. the little screen has that little curve yes to it if you've ever turned it sideways it feels a lot like the nexus it looks like a lot like the nexus yeah. and the thing that she likes about it and i was asking her how she liked it she said the thing that that stands out to her the thing the biggest improvement to her other than the fact that she says lollipop is super intuitive she said that she felt like she was fighting android up until she got to lollipop and now she goes mm. i pick up my phone and i wiggle it and i can take a picture and she goes, there's just, there's little things like that that she has just figured out from yeah. using it. So uh, the Moto, the Motos have some of the best build qualities. And so, by the way, mm -hmm. when you buy a phone from Ting, it's, it's unlocked. It's yours. There's no contract. You go to last.ting.com, you're going to get a $25 discount, and then you just pay for usage. Your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, that's what you pay for. And then any local tax is going to depend on your state. Uh, and that's it. Now, Noah, you have the S4. And, I do, and dude, I I'm mad respect. That's a that's a pretty solid phone. Um, mm -hmm. You deserve I you deserve the S six. You really, I know I do. You really I do. know I do. And I've got the S six on Ting right here. I've got the S six Edge on Ting, and dude. This is the best smartphone. So I have a sci-fi theme installed right now. It's got, the, it's got the fingerprint reader, so I don't even have to enter my passcode. If I want, I just put my thumb on the uh, home screen. It unlocks it for me. I've got a sci-fi theme on here. And I actually even left the Samsung launcher on this thing. The camera, check this out, dude. So here's the home button. You two press this, and it launches the camera immediately within two seconds. Look at that. Yeah. How slick is that? So, I, I mean, when, you, when you've got kids and you want to take a picture, you know, that is... <laughs> I mean, like, I don't, I don't know how you beat that. This is a really great phone. And here's the best part. Ting just takes GSM phones. Like, go, we'll go over to their BYOD page and find out. But they have a CDMA network and GSM network that they're fully compatible with. So you may be able to bring a device you've already got. If that's the case, they'll give you a $25 credit on your plan. Now, here's something else that's great. You just, if you want hotspot and tethering, you just turn it on. And they have no hold customer service. You call them at one eight five five ting ftw anytime, anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. East Coast. And a real human being answers the phone. Now, I've been a Ting customer for about two years and change now. And about, uh, oh, I, I, wanna, I should actually look it up. But I think about a year and a half in, I realized I spend so much time every single week trying to figure out the best Android app to suggest to you guys. Because, you know, Android's <laughs> a Linux platform, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and then I realized 
So one of the things I love about Ting is when you call their customer service, one eight five five ting ftw uh, it's real Android geeks that answer the phone, or iOS, depending on what your, or Windows phone, I, I'm sorry, if that's your phone. Uh, and so, like, why am I spending all of my time doing this? And so then I realized Ting does this already. They have an app pick. I want to roll it for you this week. It's Ting's app pick of the week. And seriously, if you're a Ting customer or not, this is going to be beneficial If you've ever you. wished there was a Ting Check in the banking out. world, the choice is simple. I'm Kyra, and this is the Ting app of the week. Simple. Simple is banking the way it should be. They keep things, well, simple. Simple offers the tools to take control of your money, your spending, and your savings. If you're not yet using Simple, you can request an invite within the app. Once logged in, your spending is tracked through the activity tab. Transactions are displayed in a timeline. Tap an event to get more info. Here you'll find useful information like the spending category and who you bought from. The goals tab is where you save for a rainy day or for that Ting phone you've had your eye on. Name it, enter the amount you're looking to save, and set the date for your future goal. Simple crunches the numbers to tell you how much you need to save each day. Simple's Save to Spend tool keeps your saving goals in mind and gives you an allowance of sorts. Where Current Balance tells you how much money you have, Save to Spend tells you how much of that money you can afford to be without. You can snap a picture of a check to do a deposit and do all the standard stuff you'd expect to do with online banking. Pay bills, transfer funds, that kind of thing. If you're tired of the same old banking, Simple is a breath of fresh air. Grab the app, available on Android and iOS, and see for yourself. Thanks for watching, and see you next week. So I was actually, uh, I was actually part of the invitation program when Simple first launched. And uh, I've been a Simple customer ever since, and so I've been it, super happy with it. Is it a whole bank, Noah? Yeah, it's a whole bank. You, you. It, it used to be invitation only. I assume now that they're they're demoing, you can just sign up. But yeah, you sign up, you get a bank account, you get a routing number, you put money in. But the nice thing is, is I get when I spend money out of my on my simple card, like I swipe my simple debit card, I get a push notification on my phone. You spent X amount of dollars here, and you can you can set it up to steal money from you. So let's say you want to buy. It sounds crazy, but listen, hear me out. Let's say you want to. Let's say I want to buy that S six, and I don't have the money for it. And I say, all right, simple. I it, simple will notice that I don't, I don't, I don't notice when I spend, you know, a dollar fifty or two dollars over or under, because who notices that? It will steal two dollars a week from me, or two dollars every four days, or two dollars every whatever, and put it into a hidden account. And then it'll, I'll get a notification. It'll say your goal of an S six has been reached, and you have six hundred and fifty dollars. Here you go, go buy your S six. So it'll like steal little bits of money from you and try to save money for you. It, it's really cool. I actually think that could work for somebody like me. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, because because I can never, I never get to the point. I can't spend big amounts of money. Like I can't go and be like, oh, I'm going to take six hundred dollars out and go spend it. But if I lose two or three bucks here or there, that yeah. I don't really notice, yeah. and that adds up. Even it adds up really quickly. It turns out. Um, but yeah, I love I love simple. Thank you to Ting. Last.ting.com. All right, Noah. Let's talk about uh, this. So. Um, uh, one of my, I don't know, I think it because it intersects with politics and, and technology and futurism, I have, mm -hmm. in sci-fi, really, I have found the Snowden leaks to be something that scratches a particular itch in me in a way that I have investigated and read about this like a maniac. And mm -hmm. I have followed this so closely. And, and during all of the Snowden revelations, I have, I have fantasized and dreamt up how this system could be built based on what I know about 
from log collection. And I know this sounds really weird, but um, if you'll bear with me for a second, if you think about it in an enterprise environment where you have thousands of devices that are logging every second, um, that is just an insane amount of data to process. And then to be able to extract from that data actual um, actionable events that need mm-hmm. to be investigated and that aren't just noise is a very complicated system and process. And then to, and then to be able to prove to auditors, to FDIC auditors and management that you are doing due diligence, you are researching these things, is on top of that an enormous task. And I guess now we call this big data. Back then I just called it, holy shit, I got too much data. I don't know what we call yeah. it now. Yeah. So I've always been extremely fascinated by any system that could, you know, capture three days of the internet, process yeah. three days of the internet, collect basic key triggers like things that are encrypted or certain catchphrases or certain destinations, extract that and store it into a database and make it searchable later on. Well, that's exactly what logging does, and that's exactly what the NSA has done to surveil the American public. And we're talking about X-Keyscore. X-Keyscore is a system that sits on top of PRISM. PRISM is a system that collects data over the internet. They literally split the fiber optic cable on the internet. You can find out more about this online. But So what they do is they split the fiber optic cable, they collect a secondary copy of everything that's transferred over the internet, and they collect this in a three-day buffer. A three-day buffer is what we know of as of about 2008, 2011. It may be more now, mm-hmm. but we don't really know for sure. And really... How do you how how do you know how many? But that doesn't matter. But what we do right. know is they collect three days or so of the internet, and then they parse that for information that would be suspicious. Suspicious. Maybe it's terrorism related, or maybe it's some sort of insider trading that they would find to be fascinating, or who knows what they would want, right? And they, mm-hmm. but in order to search all of this, you need a program to go select these individual individual bits of information, and that program is called X Keyscore. Well, this week, Noah. We got some very inform- interesting information about what actually powers X Keyscore. And it's turns out Red Hat servers, MySQL, Bash scripts, and Apache. And uh, this got Red Hat in a whole shit ton of controversy this week. Like, Red Hat had to make public statements about how they didn't know they were working with the NSA and all the speculation. Now, before we get to what Richard Stallman had to say about all of this, as somebody who deploys a lot of Red Hat, as somebody who deploys a lot of CentOS, yeah, and somebody who had to watch this, Noah. Did you have any like? Did you catch anything from the news? Or were you? Did you have any clients that said anything to you? What What was your impression? Yeah. Well, so uh, this week, I mean, not to derail the story or anything, but this week was primarily occupied with fixing OpenSSL. Right. But uh, but uh, but no, um, the the. I don't. I guess the way I I look at this is Red Hat is in business to make money. I know because I have contracts is that the government pays their bills. So if the government comes to you for for a contract and wants well, to use your software, Red Hat says they had. Well, we have no idea if the NSA is using our software, and of course they wouldn't, yeah. right? It'd be the federal government, and of course the federal government is right. probably a right. huge customer. Right. Right, as and as they should be, and as the, and they should treat them just like they treat every other client. Now, if if Red Hat ever if it ever got to a point where people were accusing Red Hat of giving the NSA special access to things or giving yeah. the NSA backdoors to things, that's an entirely different story. But as far as if the NSA is using Red Hat, do I think that it requires some justification or from no? no. I, Thank so you. What? Thank you. So this is where I stand on it too, and this is where Richard Stallman stands on it as well. Is uh, you cannot be an advocate for open source. You cannot be an advocate for free software. You cannot be a f- for floss, for libre software. You cannot be an advocate for that and then have an issue where the NSA wants to contribute to SE Linux. You can't well, be... Well, actually, 
really what you mean to say is and have an, and then dictate who can use it and who can't use it because yeah, I was you don't getting agree there. with what they're yeah, doing with it. Cause, no, I, yeah, that seems so obvious. I didn't even want to start with that because that's so <laughs> freaking obvious yeah. on its face. I didn't even feel like I should open with that. I wanted to open with yeah. code contributions. I wanted to open with community contributions because even yeah. that level seems obvious to me. Now, here's what we have. We have the option of what we want to accept. Who do we want to take code from? Who do we want to follow? Who do we want to listen to? As users... That's our option. But as a community, if it's an open source license and we're saying contribute, then we have to allow contributions from anyone. And that's essentially where Richard Stallman came down as well. And so I, I, I found it sort of, um, I found it to be like fair weather open source advocates this week. Those mm -hmm. that, uh, w that took up pitchforks and went after Red Hat and those who went after Linux for uh, being used at the NSA. In fact, I, I got a ribbing from a FreeBSD user, not, not anybody we know, but just from an email. I got an email from mm -hmm. a FreeBSD user who was giving me a ribbing for like, well, look where your GPL has gotten you now, which is so, such crap. And I, yeah, I, it really is. I, I, so here, here's where I want to zoom out and I just want to say, uh, would you rather they're using Windows? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. That would make everything better if they were using proprietary software to, <laughs> to spy. On. Then, then I would feel better at night. No, you know what? Honestly, use Linux. At least, at least, if you're going to spy on me, use a good tool to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and uh, Richard Stallman. Uh, so it was. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I like. I love. Uh, I love. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Swamp Swamp Name. I'm going to get your name wrong. But I love him. He has some of the. He has great stuff. He's over at itworld.com. He did an interview with Richard Stallman, and Richard Stallman basically post uh, pointed him to a previous uh, write up that he has done before on the topic, where he says, you know, this is the thing about free software, and uh, he, mm -hmm. says, uh, he says, he uh, says, he says, I bet the Richard Stallman basically agrees that anyone can use this, and I do too. I wish it wasn't the NSA, but at the same time, I don't want them using something else. So. Yeah, I just don't want them to do it. I don't want them violating the Constitution at all, with or without free software. But the, so I guess that extrapolates. Like we can expand that far further than the NSA. If you are to say, if you take the, the stance that the NSA shouldn't use the software because those are bad things and they shouldn't do bad things with free software, who gets to decide what's good and what's bad? Mm. Hmm. And then where did where so so if I decide that if I create a project and then I decide that I I uh, I don't agree with uh, people who wear red shirts can I make a stipulation that people that wear red shirts can't use my software? It just it doesn't yeah. you yeah. that just that's that it goes against the very grain of open source saying right. who can and can't use software. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And uh, uh, you know it's also in a way a sick testament. Like when you got to build a system that can handle crazy amounts of data at the scale nobody else has ever seen, yeah. go and Linux. Nobody wants to ever say anything good about the NSA, but and I think this article, the, the first one, I don't know if you don't have it pulled up, I do, but it, it has the, the other article that's in the show notes. Uh, the, uh, the NSA was a key contributor, in fact, one of the, one of the driving forces that brought along SE Linux. Um, so the, uh, so it's, it's not like we are not getting anything back. I, I mean, we can argue all day of if it, if the cost outweighs the the ends justify the means that kind of thing, but it's not like we're not getting thing out of this. I mean, the the NSA has has provided you know uh, mm -hmm. meaningful contributions or things have come about from the contributions of the NSA and no doubt the contracts and the money that Red Hat takes in uh, from the federal government. Now that's making me feel real weird, Noah. It's making me feel real weird. I think, but it's a reality. Yeah. We wouldn't. We probably wouldn't. I'll go as far to say this: I don't think we would have SE Linux if it wasn't for the NSA and the government. I want to. I just. I want to make one more comment, and it's not related to what you said, and it's not really Linux related. But I just. I, I personally I need to make this comment on air. 
Um, one of the things that, that extremely bothers me about this discussion that you and I just had is that we talked about constitutional violations. We talked about monitoring American citizens. The reality is what they're doing to people outside the United States is far more egregious and aggressive than anything yeah. they're doing to us inside the United States, and I'm not okay with that either. And I, I, I don't have a way to express that properly, and I'm sorry that our somebody that's a representative of our government is violating your privacy that way. Um, we take it seriously, and that's why one of the things we talk about on this show is how to keep your private stuff private. And it's a, it's a, it's a mandate and a charge we will continue to pursue. Uh, and so we are very so, we are very uh, cognizant of the fact that this has a much bigger impact on people outside the United States. We are not we are not dismissing that aspect of the conversation. So uh, that's might be a happy note to end on. Actually, is that the 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 bright side of this, the happy side to this is. This really only affects people that aren't in the know to a certain yes. extent. If you are if you are careful, if you pay attention, if you watch Linux Action Show every week, the tools come we have the tools available to us to make it I'm not saying it's a it's a full on guarantee. No. I'm not we saying We are now living in a sci fi movie. If you are aware right. if you are hip to open source and encryption and privacy mm -hmm. tools and you, uh, can, you are you can protect yourself. Right, and it, it, to some degree, it's low-hanging fruit. Right, they're going to go after they're going to go after the people that you know that 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 are easy to get. And the the problem with encryption is, people only use it to protect private stuff, which just hmm. further perpetuates this cycle of mm -hmm. you only encrypt things that you're trying to hide. Yeah, it's like and it's flagging. Right, it, it's, it validates it validates this this perception of well, he encrypted it because he wanted to hide it. No, listen, encrypt everything. Encrypt your entire hard drive. Encrypt everything. Don't just use private tabs in Firefox uh, when when you're looking at porn. Use it all the time. Don't mm. just use porn. You know, and, you I, can't okay, say I'm, that. You can't I, say I, that because you don't that, do that. Some of those things aren't practical, and yeah. and putting Tor at your router level isn't necessarily practical either. But 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 the reality is when you open up to Google search something and you want to find out where the nearest cafe. Is. There's no reason you can't do that in a private tab. And most people don't. free software. That program, although it may be attractive, is really a trap. Try out DuckDuckGo. Yeah, and let's, we don't need to go farther than that. I think people know. Unfilter, watch the Unfilter show if you want to hear it on mm -hmm. a weekly basis. But uh, yeah, I want to talk about OpenSUSE because I did some reading on this story. I've been trying to wrap my head around uh, what is happening in OpenSUSE because uh, remember before, before the previous release, we heard like we're not going to have a lot of people working on it. We're going to work on infrastructure stuff, and you're like, well, what does that mean? And then they got Evergreen releases, and they have the tumbleweed. And what the hell is going on at OpenSUSE? And so, uh, as as somebody who used to buy every single box release, I follow with some interest. And there was a fantastic write up that I missed on the 19th over on uh, LW. Well, and now it's actually available to the general public, too. That's another reason I'm talking about it now. And it gave us a chance to not only digest what's happening, but maybe forecast a little bit what's going what's gonna to go on. So uh, OpenSUSE has some major changes coming to it. And I think they're absolutely fascinating. And if you think about it, it's even showed up in our reviews. OpenSUSE has frequently struggled with its identity. Who the hell is this distribution targeting? Are they developers? Are they people who want really current stuff? Are they people that want really stable stuff for the enterprise? And this has been something that you've heard in our reviews on and on. And I've honestly felt like maybe Chris is just banging this drum too much. Uh, however, Richard Brown, who sits on the chair of the OpenSUSE group, uh, he also agrees that OpenSUSE struggles with a core identity issue. And this is the beginning, this is the core issue facing OpenSUSE right now, the beginning, the root of the problem we're going to talk about today. And this is from Richard Brown. When we're talking about the OpenSUSE regular release, after nine years now, I've always felt that 
the regular release for OpenSUSE has kind of had itself stuck in the middle, being pulled in two directions. On one side, we've always had this pull from the community, from a good chunk of our users, for more new stuff. The latest of everything, always new, newest of the, everything in the OpenSUSE stack. And on the other side, we have an equally sizable chunk of users who want everything to be more stable, more reliable, not breaking all the time, and in some cases, not updating all the time. They just want a platform to actually run their stuff on. Doesn't this, doesn't this, Noah, doesn't that sound like almost the core debate you and I fall into all the time? I'm yes. like, go yes. rolling. Let's use Arch in the studio. You're like, man, I'm not going to put that in the studio unless we can put Ubuntu on it. And I'm like, uh, Noah, I'm not going to let you put another Ubuntu computer in this studio. It has to be rolling. Is this not yeah. a dichotomy that you and I get caught yes. in all the time? Yes. Yes. And as an enterprise guy, you must run into this too. I mean, you deploy CentOS constantly. No. Yes. Well, yeah, we do, but I don't have anyone on the other end saying that we should uh, that, that we should be using uh, rolling releases. Right. Everyone seems to be okay with using sure. stable. Exactly, because there's a huge market for it, right? There's a very yeah. sensible yeah. market for that. <laughs> well, so uh, this is the dichotomy that OpenSUSE finds them in, because here's the issue. Tumbleweed is their big success story recently. Tumbleweed's their most recent success story. Tumbleweed is their fast-moving distribution built on the rolling release model. Like other rolling release distributions, Tumbleweed does without fixed releases. Instead, regularly, it regularly incorporates updated software as it becomes ready. The number of Tumbleweed users has been growing at a steady rate. Uh, somewhere right now, Noah, around 300,000 active monthly users of Tumbleweed, 400,000. So somewhere in the ballpark of people that watch the Linux Action Show are running Tumbleweed. Uh, maybe a little less. There's more people watching the Linux Action Show that run Tumbleweed, but not many more. Like, it's somewhere in that range. To give you a perspective, this is how big Tumbleweed has gotten. That's a pretty big deal for monthly watchers, right? And so Tumbleweed, as a result, has become the focus of a lot of developers' attention in the OpenSUSE project. Why wouldn't it? If you have some big new hit that in several months has picked up almost 500,000 users, well, hell yeah, you're going to spend some time focusing on that. That's a huge deal, especially for a distribution like OpenSUSE that's been strain within relevance for a long time now. And so as a result, OpenSUSE had a large number of developers focused on that, and a very small amount of people focused on making OpenSUSE 13.2 an actually re successful release. Very few people actually worked on the last release of OpenSUSE. The distribution seems to be caught in an unappealing middle point. It does not move as quickly as Tumbleweed, but it still updates often enough to put off users looking for an enterprise distro, sort of like Fedora does as well. So Richard was setting out to sort of try to solve this problem, what do we do? Do we make Tumbleweed the focus of OpenSUSE? Do we just forget those people that want the stable release? Well, luckily for Richard and the OpenSUSE project, uh, there happens to be another alternative that came around. You, there's a component about this. We've, I mentioned Fedora as sort of a comparison. Well, the comparison to Fedora, right, would be Red Hat Enterprise Linux as another Sort of like, uh, uh, sort of, you have Fedora and you have Red Hat Enterprise Linux. With OpenSUSE, you have OpenSUSE and you have SUSE Enterprise Linux, SLEE, or as they call it, S L E. Now, one of the things that's interesting, Noah, right, and if I'm understanding, is everybody kind of knows a lot of times what gets developed in Fedora eventually makes right. it up into Red Hat Enterprise Linux in some form or another, refined and perfected. And, and if, like, you, one of the reasons. You're a Fedora user. Is that is that very reason, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So well, at least that was that was the case a while ago. We've we've gotten to a point now that Fedora and 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 Red Hat have gotten so far apart that you can't 
it's got a little more complicated. But. Yes. Uh, now, this is not necessarily, though, the same dichotomy between OpenSUSE and SUSE Enterprise Linux. There's more of a gap. In fact, they even call it a gap. There's more of a gap between the two distributions. And they're mm-hmm. about to do the reverse of what Fedora and CentOS and Red Hat Enterprise Linux do. Sort of instead, you're going to have the option to have Tumbleweed for development releases, and then OpenSUSE is going to actually be based on sources from the enterprise distro, sort of the opposite of Fedora. Hmm. So this is where, this is sort of the long-standing story of, yeah, SUSE wanting to work with OpenSUSE, collaborate on OpenSUSE, do all the innovation in the OpenCC project and then be able to use it as part of the main C distribution. So as we've heard now on the mailing list and with Marcus's uh, presentation, the big announcement that sort of SUSE wanted to say to here is all of the latest SLE sources for SUSE and Enterprise 12 are now in the OBS available for OpenSUSE to build with. They're there. And that also includes the maintenance updates. So as SLE 12 gets maintenance updates, they will also appear in OBS. And OpenSUSE can now actually build a community distribution with enterprise sources as part of it. So it's sort of a little bit of the reverse. You could have OpenSUSE built on the enterprise components, so you might feel a little more comfortable deploying OpenSUSE in a production environment. And then remember, also, Noah, you've got the OBS, the Open Build Service, that could play a significant role in bringing modern applications into this. And something else that's interesting about this is OpenSUSE won't necessarily be committed to the opens to the, to the SUSE enterprise packages. They can individually choose to replace the enterprise packages with more modern packages from Tumbleweed if mm-hmm. it seems appropriate, but they feel there's going to be a pretty big cost to pay off ratio there, so they're going to have to choose pretty particularly. But the idea here is, so you got, you got, you got three main tracks now, the way I see it. Tumbleweed, for anybody that wants a reasonable distro with modern functionality that actually reflects what's happening in the Linux world. That's Tumbleweed. And then you got OpenSUSE for any of you that are scared by software updates and you don't want to break your production environment. Extremely reasonable. And then you've got SUSE Enterprise Linux for any of you that want all of that same stuff, but you want it for more years and you want to pay a lot of money and something that has the enterprise gold standard, something that has a lot of support infrastructure around it, something that snaps into management infrastructures. Then you have this full range now. So on your desktop, on your laptop, like a human being, you can use a reasonable distro like Tumbleweed, and then on your work machine where you have to fit inside a box, you can use OpenSUSE, and then on your enterprise rig where you have to make sure your ass isn't going to get fired, you can run your enterprise distro. It's a pretty nice broad spectrum. So it seems to me that a couple things are backwards. So first of all, I don't quite follow the advantage of taking from the enterprise and pulling it back into OpenSUSE. So, and I say that for a number of reasons. The first is, the enterprise release is where the capital is. That is where they're getting paid to produce a particular product. So that's where everything has to be refined and stopped, and uh, we've got uh, we got all the bugs sorted out. That to me, that's what the enterprise release is. And then the the thing that is appealing about this to me is the this idea that 
OpenSUSE fills a niche for me that uh, yeah. in this in this scenario that Red Hat just doesn't accommodate, and that is there is nothing in in the in the Red Hat world. There is nothing between uh, the crazy bleeding edge people that can't that uh, want everything to break constantly, and the totally stable where everything works constantly. I need something in the middle where something is a little bit newer packages, a little bit newer packages, but is designed for enterprise, yeah. like an enterprise. And I was refer talking to the Red Hat people. I called it an enterprise desktop, not a workstation, not a server, hmm. but a desktop operating system, enterprise desktop operating system, much like hmm. Ubuntu. So and Red Hat doesn't. So here's the thing, Noah. Uh, I completely agree. You're 100% right. It is completely backwards. And here, here's the fundamental issue. is It is a function of the way the business is set up and not a function of what the user needs. And what I mean by that is the reason they're doing it this way is because from a finances standpoint, from a risk management standpoint, from a this is what makes us money, at the end of the day, you, could you can philosophize about, oh, my God, it'd be amazing to have this brilliant community that contributes to this open SUSE distribution. And then we take their inspired genius ideas and we coalesce it into this enterprise distribution that we sell for thousands of dollars. In reality, you have 100 engineers, 200 engineers, 1,000, whatever it is. They have to focus on the product that makes you money. So when you're paying a developer $50 an hour, $30 an hour, whatever it is, they're going to work on your product that makes money. That's SUSE Enterprise Linux. Fair and square. That's what makes them money. That's what they're going to spend their R&D on. That means all of the packages, all of the refining, all of the bug fixes, all of the community interference, all of the going between an OEM, a hardware OEM, and OpenSUSE, all of that happens not at the OpenSUSE level, but at the SUSE Enterprise level, because that's where the money is. So what they Seems have like to do then is they have to take that investment at the SUSE Enterprise level, and they have to reinvest it back at the OpenSUSE level. Kind of a neat idea. It makes OpenSUSE more stable. Hey, hey, hey. But in reality, Noah, is it completely negates the benefit of what Fedora brings, where Fedora gives something, not only time for <coughs> projects and technologies to sort of mature and develop, SystemD, Pulse Audio, mm -hmm. Network Manager, uh, SE Linux, all all of this has had time to mature and develop and have people like yourself get familiar with it in Fedora before it hit the enterprise release. That mm -hmm. will completely be gone with this model that SUSE is going with, which doesn't make any sense unless you look at it from a completely pragmatic business expense standpoint. If you look at even it from what's best for the community, go ahead. I, I, I don't even think, for, I think from a business perspective it doesn't make sense. Oh, I think from no, because no, look, at the end of the day, that's what they've got to spend their money on. It's like, yes, from a like, oh man, if I had billions of dollars and I could invest in the long term, I would go the Red mm -hmm. Hat route. But if I am, if I'm like some subsidiary of like Attachmate or some company mm -hmm. that barely gives a shit about me anyways, then I've really got to work with very limited resources and limited money and I've got to decide where am I going to spend those resources and I'm going to spend those resources making sure that my enterprise product is as good as I say it is. And See, that means that's where all the developers go. I disagree. I think that I think that if you have limited resources, it is twice as important for you to put as many of those resources into uh, into backing your community, so that you can you can use the resources that the community leverages to make a better enterprise product. If you're going to pay a developer and he's going to make some changes to the software, make those changes in OpenSUSE, and then if it works in OpenSUSE, then put it into your your stable enterprise product. Don't have people pegging around inside of a product that, that people are paying hmm. for and making changes there. But that dude, doesn't make any dude, sense. Dude, Tumbleweed's going to solve all that. Tumbleweed will no, solve all that. Not, though. So you're paying developers to work in Tumbleweed or you're paying developers to work in, 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 in your in no, your enterprise so in district? Tumbleweed, you get to capitalize on the enthusiasm, right? So that way your money gets spent on the enterprise product, but you get to capitalize on enthusiasm with Tumbleweed. Yeah, yeah. I it, it, this this entire business model seems broken to me, and it, and and not only does it seem broken, but that is, I think it's a particularly dangerous route to go for a company that doesn't seem to have 
and, and I don't mean to be offensive about this, but doesn't seem to have any huge competitive advantage. And I'm open to I'm open to being wrong. Please prove me wrong. Somebody go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click on the Linux section for, show from the dropdown, click on the contact link, and tell me what what OpenSUSE offers that I can't get from right. either Ubuntu, Red Hat, well, or, or, or and, any of the derivatives there. Not as somebody who used to recommend to deploy SUSE Enterprise Linux at a, at all of my clients over Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I now am no longer quite as clear as to what the advantage is. Um, so, for example, containerization is a huge, huge deal. Now, SUSE has sort of been following that, but it's only been the last major update they just had where they're like, SUSE is now container ready. Cool. In 2014, like this is 2015, you're just now kind of officially rolling out Docker support? Way to kind of not be relevant at all. Like I could have rolled my own distribution and hired a contractor to support that with Ubuntu mm -hmm. 14.04 and had container support a year ago. Like how is that a competitive product anymore? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I there are. I mean, there are small things that I really like uh, about OpenSUSE. So, for example, I think they did a really good job implementing KDE. I think that uh, Yast is is really cool. I think that's a great way to get started with uh, yeah. with, with and administration. You know what? You're totally right. No, we've... all those points have been so totally valid for like seven years now. And those are the same yeah, right, seven right. points we've all like. Right. Every time we shit on OpenSUSE, you and I sit here and we say, "But here's the good things. They've got yeah. Yast and it's yeah. German <laughs> and yeah. um, uh -huh. KDE." And like mm -hmm. we're like ah. and the open build service, yeah, yeah, and, like hit, they, we, and they do like good, they do good upstream work. But the reality is, SUSE Enterprises where they're making their money. I don't want you to sugarcoat this. Yeah, we're gonna get a lot of bad feedback for it, but that's why people listen to this show. The reality yeah. is, it's not a very impressive distribution anymore. And but but I think what they're working on, to be honest with you, I actually think is very refreshing. I think the idea of taking a little bit of a tweak approach of Fedora and saying, you know what, instead. OpenSUSE is going to have the most stable stuff. And you know what? It could be very smart because I'm not willing to run Fedora in production in the studio. I'm not willing to deploy to Fedora on a VPS. I love what those guys are doing. I, I respect Matthew and I respect everybody there at the project. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to run something that only has support for like half a year, a year, really, realistically. Because once I get everything set up, by the time I'm willing to deploy a distribution, it's six months in, right? And then it's got what? It's six months to maybe 18 months of support after that. That's a joke. I don't got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. I'm just going to put 1404 on there. Now, if OpenSUSE mm -hmm. can come along and offer me the open build service, that way I can have fresh versions of Mumble. I can have fresh versions of OwnCloud. I can have fresh versions of BitTorrent Sync. I can have fresh versions of Plex, all supplied by the OpenSUSE build service on a server that's getting packages from the enterprise distribution. I... You might laugh at that, it's dude, nice. but I could, it's no, nice, I actually I think, think it, I think in the VPS world, it could make a lot of sense. So I think where they're at right now is a bit of a train wreck, a bit of a clown show. It's a bit unfortunate after nine, 10 years, they're this far along and this is all we got. But at the same time, when I look at the new world of VPSs, I think, mm, actually, I could see me deploying an open source of VPS version 42 or whatever it's going to be. The, my yeah, that was going to be my next question is, so y y it, it seems like in order for us to come down on a, on a really positive note, it seems like it has to be qualified with, I could see myself, blah, 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 but not, I will switch to blah, blah, blah. And no. I'm the same way. There, unless, exactly. Uh, here's, here's what would happen. If OpenSUSE or SUSE or all of them together, they come out with a... A, a, a totally bleeding edge uh, th uh, thing that I can use to test software, and then they give me a good solid desktop that I can use that is that's a the community sponsored version kind mm -hmm. of a thing. Yeah. And then I have an enterprise version. That model I could get behind, but 
it was short. And then and actually that would actually probably be a strong pull away from things like Red Hat and Ubuntu because it, it, it would solve the things that I go to Ubuntu for and the things I solve with, I go to Red Hat right. for all with one distro. Right. But short of that happening, and I, that, that is not clearly not the track that they're on, despite having the, the frameworks to do that. That's not the, the track that they're going down. Short mm. of that, I, it's just not, compa- it's just not uh, compelling to me. You. That's kind of where I'm at, too. All right, so uh, this next story grabs my interest. Not only does it has it gotten a lot of traction over the last two weeks that I've been watching the story, but also it could be a sign for things to come. Canonical has partnered with Lenovo to launch an Ubuntu-powered ThinkPad, the L450 in India. Now, here's what's interesting about this. So the specs, that's not the interesting part. It's got a Core i3 or i5 processor paired with a Radeon like R5 M2040 with 2 gigabytes of RAM. Uh, it's also got an Intel uh, Iris in it, 5500. Four gigabytes of uh, computer RAM, a 500 gigabyte spinning Rust, 14 inch display, 1280 by 720. 1280 by 720. Yeah. Uh, wow. Now this is uh, so a couple things though that are good about this story. Um, I like the way they word this. They were Lenovo announced this. I like that. Let's start with that. Lenovo announced this. Number two, Lenovo announced starting in India and starting with the L450 series. Those are all good things, Noah. Starting in India, starting with this model, and announced by Lenovo. That could mean this could go big. Too bad it's such a lackluster product. So let's start. We we got to talk about something on the show Uh and that is that, uh, so I have been a, a ThinkPad fan for a long time. My first ThinkPad was the 755C, and I've owned practically every model, at least every generation uh, after that. Uh, I've been I've used ThinkPads forever, and I've always really liked them. I've always really thought, especially when IBM owned them, that they're a really solid business class tool. But there is something that I've become aware of in the ThinkPad and the Lenovo lineup in general that seems to get absolutely no attention from the Linux community. If you talk to anyone at any Linux con, they praise ThinkPads like no tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Everyone is a ThinkPad fan. ThinkPad. If you run Linux and you don't have a ThinkPad, then you're an idiot. And what has really started to and I, I, I caught on to this uh, a while actually with Angela's computer, and then it has I've seen it perpetuated numerous times, and now I realize it's every freaking laptop made by Lenovo, and nobody is talking about that. And that is they whitelist the wireless cards that are in those computers. So if you buy a ThinkPad and you want to upgrade your wireless card, you can't do it. If you put a different wireless card into the computer and you turn it on, it says, this isn't the wireless card that shipped with your computer. Take it out. It doesn't even let you post. And then, if that isn't bad enough, Lenovo publishes this ridiculous article, or somebody from Lenovo published this ridiculous article that said, all you have to do is unsolder the EEPROM off the motherboard, and then you just plug <laughs> yeah. it into this connector. Corky in the chat room's like, you dude, just, all you gotta do is mod the BIOS. It's no big it's, deal. It's not that big of a deal. You plug the serial thing in after you make this little cable and solder the these pins no. on and then you flash this different firmware and then you just solder it back onto the motherboard and it'll work and it, like q5 sis and i were sitting in a hotel room because he was having a problem with this thinkpad and he was trying to switch his wireless card and then he hit the bug and i'm like son of a gun that's like the fourth thinkpad this month that i've seen have that problem and then we looked into it and it's like every laptop by lenovo has this and you ask people that buy thinkpads and they come up with all sorts of excuses of why that doesn't matter and i'm like how does that not matter we wouldn't tolerate this from any other company if apple did this i would rant about it every single week exactly. for the next year straight exactly. but lenovo does yeah. this and nobody cares nobody cares and it, it, so let's start with that 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 is absolutely totally there is no 
absolutely no justification for that. If you want to say that they can't warranty computers because you changed the wireless card, fine. If you want to say you can't open the bottom of the computer because that voids the warranty, fine. But do not nerf the BIOS so that I can't install a different wireless card into my laptop. That, to me, is completely unacceptable. And I still like ThinkPads. I still think they're a good computer. Yeah. But that is a huge caveat and a huge, huge ding on the ThinkPad line. And everyone that goes to buy it uh, should be aware that they are they are totally handicapping you from making fundamental changes to your computer. There are yeah. many things I yeah. change inside my laptop. But the hard drive, the memory, and the wireless card yep. are three big ones. This is, I've swapped this is why times. I, I, people, people drool all over Lenovo. Uh, because they're, Lenovo is able to write checks on IBM's name. And uh, I understand. Yeah. I is So here's the thing. It is painfully obvious to me that the, this laptop is targeted at, an, at the market in India that doesn't have a lot of money to spend. How do I know that? Because of the specs. You see... I am able to figure that out because of the specs. And I still I still think it's a little disappointing because here's the other thing I know they could do. They could have a similarly specced computer with better specs, but like, you know, also running Ubuntu, they could ship in the US. And it just drives me crazy. Or Europe would be fine, or Canada. I don't care. Just ship it somewhere that I could get my hands on it for us. And the fact that they continually what here's here's why here's why it bothers me. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy with these vendors. They keep shipping these Yes. They keep shipping these piece of crap computers with these low specs in these third world countries or, or new markets or, or uh, um, emerging markets or whatever you want to call it. They keep shipping these piece of crap computers and going, well, they sell pretty good there. Well, they sell okay there. Yeah, yeah. Like we sold a million there. They've why is it that the best thinnest with the best GPU and the best CPU and the fattest SSD and the best case and the greatest screen with a high resolution? Why, 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 why once? Why once are they not once trying to ship that in the U.S.? Ship it as a full-fledged product on their front page. Put it up there. Take some marketing shots of it. Maybe even run an ad. I understand this is a product for India. That's great for India. Good for them. How about the rest of the world gets an opportunity to also show that we would like to buy a product like this? Because people like me would like to buy something like this, and people like Noah's clients would like to buy something like this. And right. if we had a high-end product we could recommend to people, it would probably start to sell. But nobody that has the name HP, Dell, or Lenovo is doing this. That's because they see Linux as an experiment. It's a cute little project on the side that maybe we'll dabble in a little bit. And, and that, that's one of the reasons why, when I, you'll notice, when I went to do the, the segment, for our main segment this, this week, I sat down with a System76. Because it's the only computer that I can pull out of the bag and know 100% that there are no unknown variables because they commit to it 100% as compared to you know, everything else. All these other companies, they basically treat it like yeah. an experiment. It's now, just... I, do have to give, I do have to give Lenovo this little bit of credit. Okay. After that huge rant, I will give them this much. I have yet to pick up a, a, an, a Lenovo product that I couldn't just install Linux on and it worked. I like to be able to swap, even when I couldn't swap the Broadcom card out of Angela's so computer. Had, but it had issues after but it had issues after works. updates it had issues after updates yeah, yeah so, that's true but I, I had mean, you know what I had the say I bought the exact same model based on the experience that she had and I gave it to another friend who yeah. we put and the, you a catch a different on update it, cycle and they and did fine. not get bit right. by that update right because you catch it one day later and it's fine yeah so yeah. Uh, I yes I, I I love that they're shipping more and but 
I, I, as I opened this story with, and now I want to close this story with, what I do like about this story is they said beginning in India and beginning with this yeah. laptop. So what that tells me is if they get some interest in a, in, a, in a reasonably cost laptop, maybe they'll expand it from there. I would love to see something shipping at, for Lenovo US and Lenovo UK and Lenovo Canada that actually has Linux on it. That, And I'm not just talking something like a Sputnik project or the XPS 13. I'm talking full page mother effing, like, you know, because they all have those really stupid slideshows that show their stupid different computers that go across the entire screen. I would like mm -hmm. number two to be a Linux box. I'm not asking for number one to be a Linux box. How about we make number slide number two a Linux box? Can we have that? You know and then I'm interested. And the reality is, the reality is, I think that they, I think that these companies, and maybe it's not lost on them. Maybe they just haven't actually brought it to fruition. But there is a market for this, and you see that market because there are tons of people that are buying Chromebooks. And the only complaint I've ever heard about a Chromebook user ever is not been, oh, I can't have Photoshop, and I can't have that. You don't hear that. All I hear is, is there a way I can download movies to this thing so mm -hmm. I can watch it while I'm on mm -hmm. an airplane? That's the mm -hmm. one complaint I get. And, and you know and what? Noah, Linux also, is a perfect replacement I, for I that. Don't, I don't have the... I can't, no, I'm sorry. I don't have the calendar in front of me, but did Windows 8 just ship yesterday? No. I'm pretty sure it shipped a while ago. They've been totally wasting all of this time hoping mm -hmm. that Microsoft will put together some craptastic show in Windows 10 that can save them. And think about this. Think about all these idiot OEMs that are sitting there with their D <laughs> on the desk waiting yeah. for Microsoft to come along yeah. and provide them their next rescue boat. Yeah. Like, yeah. And without yeah. Microsoft, what do they have? So it is absolutely yeah. in their core total absolute business interest to find something else that makes their product sustainable without Microsoft. Could you imagine your entire absolute business being dependent on one software provider? That seems yeah, suicidal well, to me, you know regardless what? of who it is, it's suicidal. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there was, there was, and I mean, there, you know, you and I both know there was a lot more that went into this decision than just that. But there was a time when the food on my table depended on what Microsoft was going to do and then my ability to roll with those punches. And I wasn't comfortable with that. And like I said, there's more decisions, the more factors that went into that. But yeah, it's, you have no idea what Microsoft is going to do. And that was six, seven, eight years ago when things were a lot more stable than they are mm -hmm. now. I don't think Microsoft knows what they're going to be doing no. in the next year or two yeah. years, because I don't think they know exactly for sure, at least, how they're going to stay relevant. Yeah, if I was Lenovo or Dell, I'd be pretty uncomfortable uh, with that whole arrangement right now. So uh, it's good to see them trying this in India. Hopefully they get some traction there, and then they're willing to experiment from outside there. And then, you know, maybe it'll pick up speed, and they'll realize there is a um, very viable alternative there. Finally, I want to talk about VirtualBox 5.0, which we've all been waiting for this one for a while. There's just a few things I want to touch on. There's a lot of little fixes. Pair of virtualization support for Linux guests has arrived, and Windows guests, which means if you run a Windows under Linux, it's going to run a lot better, uh, especially Windows 7. Improved CPU utilization also expo exposes a broader set of CPU instructions to guest OS making it much more competitive with VMware, and support for direct access to USB 3.0 devices. Yeah, they can directly recognize USB 3.0 devices and operate at full USB 3.0 speeds. And bi-directional drag and drop support for Windows on all host platforms. If you do have a Linux VirtualBox, you'll now be able to drag from your desktop to the Linux VirtualBox. And disk image encryption. Data can now be encrypted on virtual hard disk images transparently during runtime using AES up to 256-bit data encryption. Uh, and they can also do passphrases before you can start the virtual machine now, as well as a bunch of other fixes. VirtualBox 5.0. Finally, no. Does it feel like it's been a year or two since? I mean, how long is it? I don't. It feels like it's been a decade. Yeah, I, it's it's been a while. But honestly, VirtualBox is one is one of the few projects 
that I can honestly say with no equivocations, I have no desires. Like, they, there is nothing that I need VirtualBox to do right now, the very current version that's installed on my laptop, there's nothing I need it to do that it isn't already doing. It does everything I expect it to do, which is once every, three, maybe not for you, but for me, once every three or four months, I need to spin it up. I need to run some esoteric piece of Windows software. I need to run that for 10 minutes, and then I need it to go away and not exist anymore. And you know it I does need? that flawlessly. Do you know what I need? I need Hard one checkbox. Check one checkbox, 3D acceleration pass-through. I don't care if I got to have a second 3D card. I got to get another NVIDIA card or an ATI card, and I got to put that in my rig. I don't care if I got to burn a PCI slot for that. I want a checkbox. And when I check that checkbox, I want the guest OS to have full, unadulterated access to my video card. I want full, mother effing 3D acceleration inside a virtual machine. No guest pass through, nothing. Take, a, take my video card and own it. And I want that in one checkbox. And until VirtualBox has that, I will not rest. I don't see. I th so, can you give me a scenario? Uh, are you are you saying you'd like to use it like a, for a virtual Windows gaming box or something like that? Yeah. Or AutoCAD so, or video editing or right. Okay. So I don't think that. I mean, and, and, and Oracle would probably disagree with this, but that's to me that's not what what VirtualBox is. If I wanted to do something like that, if I want to do hardware level kind of uh, like super intensive, like I'm actually going to use this kind of a thing, I would go with something like, like Vert Manager with KVM. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I would do PCI pass You can't can do that to today in KVM. That's why I brought it up. Is It is possible to do it today already, uh, but it's it's, you know, Two days worth uh, I of work, see, maybe? I see VirtualBox as a way to run... Uh, uh, I, I look at it like a Windows emulator. I don't look at it as true virtualization, I guess. If I want true virtualization, I go to an enterprise-grade virtualization. And I know that they would probably tell me that that is what they're aiming for. But uh, to me, that's not virtual. VirtualBox is just a toy that I can use to try things out or to, uh, like I said, is, is kind of like a, a way to, to substitute getting some Windows stuff done. I don't use it for anything serious. Yeah. Uh, I certainly wouldn't want to edit video on it. I can completely understand that. Yeah. Um, and it would it would be really cool if if uh, if they if they got a lot of that a lot of those oh, things sure, worked yeah. out. But then there's other things that they need. So for example, if we're going to go that route, I'd also want the ability to close VirtualBox altogether and have the guests continue to run in the background. If I want to run like a little server or something like that. Yeah, there are so options. Like one of the other one of the other things they've added with this version of VirtualBox is you can now start it without bringing, bringing up the whole GUI. So you click the virtual machine and you say start headless, and it starts it up in the background as part of the daemon process. And then you can connect them in. Yeah, the yeah, okay. Later. So there you go. So I would need so that that so stuff like that has to exist. But the other thing is too is I would need somebody like you that has spent a lot of, because I don't use virtual environments. I use them on servers all the time, but I don't use virtual environments for my day to day working stuff. So I don't have a metric to evaluate uh. is this virtual environment better than the other. Ah, yeah, so yeah. I would need somebody like you to say, listen, I've used uh, I've used this particular uh, infrastructure for te to, for trying out distros or trying this out, yeah. and these are the things there, I don't you know, like. It's, it's, it's interesting, though. There's a whole category of users. Uh, I've heard from them that are mostly in, in work, and they'll sometimes do it because of restrictions on their PC or because their work doesn't allow them to mm -hmm. run Linux. And what they do is a lot of times they'll install VMware or VirtualBox on a Windows computer provided by them by work. And then they'll run Linux full screen in a virtual environment. 
as their as their main desktop. And if you mm -hmm. think about it, you all of a sudden inherit a bunch of advantages like snapshots, but obviously also privacy because now with VirtualBox mm -hmm. 5.0 you can password protect a virtual machine, and so you can do all of your different shenanigans inside the virtual machine, shut it down at the end of the day, and there's not a trace left on the host Windows operating system, right? Uh, but yeah. you can also install your own updates, install your own applications. There's no administrator password over your virtual machine because once you're in, it's yours. You've got root access. So we hear from people who say, yeah, that's what I, that's I, when, that one of the reasons I actually put VirtualBox 5.0 in the lineup is because people are saying, I use this at work as my full-time environment, and this is yep. where I live, and it's not fast enough, but it's going to get finally faster. VMware Workstation, in my opinion, is still a bit better of a product if you're using it full-time like that, but if you want mm -hmm. something that's free and, and something that's honestly easier to maintain on the Linux desktop, there's no beat in VirtualBox. The the only thing I would caution people for, and this is just a this is a solid plea straight from my heart, is please do not evaluate Linux based on your experience inside of VirtualBox. Uh, I've had a I've had a couple of people that have talked to me and said, yeah, I tried Linux, it was horrible. I said, well, what do you mean? Oh, well, I I tried Ubuntu, but everything's laggy, and you click on a button and it doesn't load. I said, well, hardware are you running it on? Oh, it's running on a Core i5 with a blah blah blah. And I'm like, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I just had to close the VirtualBox. I'm like, wait, what? Oh yeah, yeah, I was running it in VirtualBox. So just don't uh, don't base your opinion of how Linux works or doesn't work based on VirtualBox. Don't tell me that software doesn't load or that when you clicked on it, it wasn't responsive. Or don't do that inside of VirtualBox. But if it works for you, all the merrier. Now, me personally, I have replaced that need of I when I'm on somebody else's computer and I want to spin up my 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 own Linux desktop. I've replaced that with X2Go, and I find X2Go yeah, as long as you're cognizant, cognizant, you're not going to game on it, but as long as you're cognizantly aware of the fact that you're working on a desktop across the internet, I can tell that you're skeptical, but you have to try it first and then come back and tell me that you, because right now you're thinking, yeah, but it's it's going to be slow. No, you know what? Be we need to do a segment. We need to do a segment yeah. on this, and on a remote system, because I have, I, I this, oh my gosh, I have, a, I have a great story. I'll save it for that segment. We need to do a story on it, a uh, segment on it, because it is an amazing way to get access to a Linux box from anywhere you are with low resources, bypass restrictions. It's great. It'll take you 10 minutes to set up. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Noah. Well, uh, so uh, we'll have links to all the news stories we talked about in the show notes today. And uh, of course, if you'd like to add anything to our show, our news roundup, go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com, submit stories there, vote on them or give comments. And then that usually informs a pretty good portion of the news segment on the Linux Action Show. But Noah, with the news all done, let's wrap it up and go look at the YubiKey. Can this little device, the YubiKey, actually make your life and your servers and computers more secure? Well, actually, yes. And we'll tell you how you can integrate it in with Linux, perhaps to make it even more automated for your SSH logins. But first, I want to talk about our segment sponsor this week, somebody who makes this very segment possible, and that's OSCON, the O'Reilly Open Source Convention, going on between July 20th and 24th in Portland, Oregon, 2015. OSCON, and Noah and I are going to be there, too, is a yearly event that features really the best stuff going on in open source. Every Everybody, any company that uses open source, and that's pretty much everybody these days, pretty much has a reason to go to OSCON. And when I went there, I got some really interesting insights. One of the coolest projects I saw was a guy building a laptop, an open source laptop out of wood. And one of the most interesting conversations I had was actually with a really proprietary company. But the way they were able to take and, and use open source even to their advantage was very, very fascinating. I, I really saw the whole spectrum from conversations with guys from Rackspace and about their, their vision with Docker and CoreOS. And like most people, you've probably got a lot of items on your learning list, like languages and new tools and answers to questions. Maybe you've been trying to kick around inside your corporation for a while. Well, OSCON is the place to go hyper-focus on these types of issues, on these types of questions, and on that next technology you might be able to build on top of. And in 
this year, they've added some new functionalities, some new nice features, you might, some super, some super focus courses that I want you guys to go check out. But really, right now, for just a little bit longer, if you tweet at JupyterSignal, this is, I think, the last week we're going to do this, tweet at JupyterSignal with hashtag OSCON with a reason why you want to go to OSCON, and we're going to give away a free bronze pass, so that way you can make it out to OSCON. Now, if you're in the Portland area, I want you to go. We're going to be down there July 22nd. We'll be at OSCON, rocking the floor, and we're also going to have a meetup afterwards. You can find out more at meetup.com slash Broadcasting And use our promo code Linux. Promo code Linux when you're checking out at OSCON, and you'll get 20% off a gold, platinum, silver, or bronze pass. That's not so bad, really. 20% off is nice. Go to OSCON. You'll be able to stay current on technologies, technologies that impact your business, uninterrupted focus like you don't get at the office, and full stack exposure at OSCON. That's just some of the reasons to attend. Use our promo code Linux to save 20% off and say hi to Noah and I. We'll be down there with cameras and microphones as well. Are you excited? No, what do you think? It's going to be a good time. I am. I'm, I'm, excited. I'm excited about OSCON because as an IT professional, I, th- those are the kind of conferences where I get a chance to have uninterrupted focus, where I get a chance to, to find out about the latest and greatest technologies, what solutions I can sell, how I can make money. You know, at the, you know we, we talk a lot about building community and all of that stuff is really great, but at some point, I have to start thinking about how I'm going to put food onto the table. Um, and this is a way that I can, I can use open source, I can use Linux to make some money. And where you find out how you can do that... <laughs> yeah. Or you get the answers. Our conferences like OSCON, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited for that perspective, and I'm also excited for the meetup that's going to happen right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we'll get to meet up with some people and 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 eat food, and that obviously is is uh, is very is a super enjoyable. Any aspect. opportunity yeah. we get to eat and like make a, like an excuse to have a social event out of it, I'm excited about. So go to mm-hmm. go to OSCON to check out more. You can find out more at their website, and also use the promo code Linux to get 20 percent off your ticket. And if you're going to make it there, please do come say hi to us and RSVP at that meetup. So uh, we can uh, let the folks know at the uh, restaurant how many people we're going to expect to see. Uh, check out OSCON, promo code Linux, and thanks to OSCON for sponsoring this segment. Now, Noah, I know you have a video on a roll, but I have, I, I, wanted to, I have a video from YubiKey about the YubiKey Nano, which is the device you use, right? I, I use two of them. I use the I use the the Neo uh, standard, which is the the standard looking YubiKey like the that has the, the Neo interface in, and yeah. then I also use the Nano Neo, which is okay. the little one that sticks out of the side of my laptop. I'm going to just play. I'm just going to play like a minute of the Nano, so that way people that are listening know what kind of hardware we're talking about. It's a really small unit that for you audio listeners goes almost like flush with the USB port here. I'll just play like a, just a moment of it. Nano. <laughs> The YubiKey Nano is a standard YubiKey in a very small form factor. About the size of a quarter. When you insert the YubiKey Nano into a USB port, it almost disappears. This is useful for laptops, for example, when you need to authenticate regularly and are happy with leaving your YubiKey in your computer all the time. Which is uh, kind of like the core reason you use your Nano. Like, you have a laptop, yep. you just leave it on all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, now, no, I, we don't need to play any more of their video because you use YubiKey every single freaking day. And there's several models, and we have the information about the different models in the show notes. If people want to check it out, uh, we'll have a link mm-hmm. in there. But there's there, there's different ones in there. You and I have, uh, you and I each have, I have, like, the real basic one. You have much right. fancier ones than I so, do. 
the 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 main segment is going to talk primarily about SSH authentication. Now, the YubiKey is specifically designed as an open device, an open authentication device that you can use in a number of different scenarios. And the segment that we pre-recorded is going to talk specifically about how to use it to authenticate into SSH. But of course, there's a number of other things that you can do uh, with the YubiKey. One of which is the one-time password feature. Yeah. So when you press the button on the YubiKey, it's going to generate a one-time password that you can use to log into some of your accounts. Now, that one-time password is then cross-referenced with the password uh, at uh, the Yubico server it to, to see if it is a valid one-time password or an invalid one-time password. And then if it's valid, it lets you proceed. If it's invalid, it, it, it denies you. Now, you can use though that one-time password feature with a number of different services, including places like the blockchain.info, the wallet service, or uh, a lot of people use it with LastPass. Now, oh, I use yeah. it with LastPass, and that's a super compelling way to, to use your YubiKey to secure LastPass. You don't need anything special. Any of the YubiKeys, to the best of my knowledge, will support one-time password authentication with the exception, I think, of the of the FIDO U2F. And I'll look at that uh, while while the video is playing and, and confirm one way or the other. Um, but even the standard $25 YubiKey is going to do this. And all you need to do to set it up in LastPass is open your, your LastPass up inside of the browser, click on Settings. And then inside of the Settings window, there's two-factor authentication. Check it, plug your YubiKey in, and press the button. Nice. And that will pair your YubiKey with LastPass. Now, one of the big concerns that some Easy. people had was, what happens if I lose my YubiKey? Well, for my my answer to that is, I have two. I pair both my YubiKeys with my LastPass, so if I ever lose one, I have a backup. Now, mind you, the whole idea of two-factor authentication is the same thing as the debit card, something you have and something you know, your debit card and your PIN. With the LastPass, it's something you have, your YubiKey, and something you know, your password. If you are to, tell, if you are to complain to the company that they should let you into your account, even though you don't have the thing you're supposed to have, you kind of defeat the purpose of having two-factor authentication in the yeah. first place. And actually, um, you know what? No, they're only twenty-five dollars. That's not horrible right. to have yeah, two you of need, them. You should have. You should have two. I, I, I really think that. Um, but uh, so that is how you can use the one-time password feature. Now, I haven't really used the U2F feature a whole lot, other than uh, to use it to sign into my Google account. And I actually disabled it because it had some conflicts with the CCID function. And I'll talk about that more a little bit in the video that is just coming up. Okay, all right, Noah. Well, there we go. So, uh, And now uh, stay tuned. So if you want to see how Noah rolls his YubiKey into his Linux production environment, he's got it all set up for us right here. Here we go. I'm going to walk you through exactly what it takes to use the YubiKey as an SSH token or an uh, SSH certificate. In a typical SSH environment, you would generate a key on your laptop and copy the public certificate over to the server. When you go to initiate an SSH session, what happens is the laptop uses the private key to prove that it is an authorized user to access the server and then access is granted. But that can be disadvantageous for a couple of reasons. The first being that private key, if it ever gets out, if anyone were to ever copy it, it becomes useless um, because then the security is, is exposed. So you need to keep very, very close track of that private certificate. And that basically rules out copying them over uh, a USB thumb drive or storing them on a NAS or a, in a cloud space. You would never want to do that with an SSH uh, certificate. So typically what you do is when you get a new laptop, you generate a new certificate and it's one certificate per computer. Now that works great for many people uh, and for most things, but the problem for me is I change laptops about as often as the wind changes direction. and I have 50 some odd servers that I manage on a monthly basis, and every time I get a new laptop, I would have to regenerate my SSH security configuration and send out that public certificate uh, to each one of those 
servers, and that gets to be extremely tedious. The nice thing about the YubiKey, when used correctly, is that it never gives up the private key. So the private key is stored on this device, and this can be considered completely secure. I can take this from one computer to the other, and there is really no security risk in doing so. Now, I keep two with me on a daily basis. I keep one that I carry around my neck for using computers like my office computer or when I'm in Seattle using the any of the computers at JB. And then I have a smaller one that I keep inside of my laptop uh, known as the Nano, which is a tiny little, it just fits right inside of the USB port. Um, and so essentially anytime I have access to my laptop, I have access to all of my uh, SSH uh, security keys. Now, there are a couple different YubiKeys, and we need to make sure that we have the correct one, because if we don't, this isn't going to work. The first one I want to talk about is the $18 YubiKey FIDO UTF. Now, this is the universal two-factor authentication. Um, it is not compatible with what we're going to do here tonight. So if you buy that one, it's a little blue key, sells for about $18. If you have that one, this isn't going to work for you. The second one is the YubiKey standard. This is kind of the generic, this is the YubiKey that everyone kind of talks about. That one, again, is not going to work. What we need is the smart card interface or the CCID interface. And if it doesn't have that, uh, again, we're not going to be able to use it with the SSH uh, certificate. So what we need to have is we need to have the YubiKey Neo. Now again, they have the YubiKey Neo that is, it looks like the standard YubiKey, but has, it, it is the Neo. And then we have the Nano Neo, which is the tiny little one that, that fits inside of your computer. So you need to pick one of those up to begin with. All right, let's get started. This is going to take us about 10 minutes from start to finish. I'm going to be using the System76 Lemur with a fresh install of Ubuntu 14.04 64-bit. So to get started, the first thing we're going to do is we are going to install the OpenSC. Now this is a smart card interface reader that's going to allow us to talk to the YubiKey. So we're going to type sudo apt-get install OpenSC. Now I'm going to append attack Y to the end of it, and that's going to allow me to not have to answer questions. It's going to ask us for our super and secret confidential sudo password. We'll give it to it and we'll press enter, and now we have OpenSC. So at this point, we can go ahead and insert our YubiKey into the side of the computer. And now we can install the Yubico software. So to do that, we have to add the Yubico repository. We're gonna type sudo apt add repository ppa colon yubico slash stable. We're gonna press enter. It's going to ask us if we're sure we want to add it. We do, so we'll press enter. Now we're going to type sudo apt-get update to refresh that repo list. And now we can actually install the Yubico software. So the Yubico tool that we need is the Yubico PIV tool. sudo apt-get install Yubico PIV tool. And again, I'm going to append that tack Y. All right, now that we have the Yubico tool installed and we have our reader installed, let's go ahead and generate a public certificate. So we're going to type Yubico PIV tool TAC S 9A TAC A generate TAC O public.pem. And we're going to wait, and now it's going to generate that certificate. All right, now we have a new, newly generated private key. So now we have the software installed and we have the public certificate generated. This is the appropriate time to change the pin if you want to do so. Now the default pin on the YubiKeys is one, two, three, four, five, six for the pin and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight for the puck. 
The puck is kind of this administrative thing that's used to reset the pin, to reset the pin in case you forget it. Now you have to be really careful because if you lock yourself out of the pin, I think you have three attempts by default to do it, it destroys the certificate and you gotta start all over again. If you forget the puck, I'm not exactly sure what the process is involved, but I know it's pretty complicated and it may even involve sending the key back to YubiKey. Um, I'd read a couple forum posts about people that had locked themselves out and it was kind of a bad deal. Um, I've never done it, so I can't personally attest to how easy or not easy it is, but I wouldn't recommend it, so I would type very carefully. So to, let's start by verifying that we know what the pin is to begin with. To do that, let's open up a terminal and type Yubico PIV tool TAC A Verify TAC PIN TAC capital P 123456. And we'll get the message successfully verified PIN if that PIN is correct. Now if it's not, this is where you need to stop and go back and see if at any point you had changed your PIN and if it's a new YubiKey, I'd suggest sending it back to Yubicode to get a replacement. But if we want, if you want to change your pin, now would be the appropriate time to do that. And we can do that by typing Yubico tac piv tac tool space tac a change tac pin, and we're going to change our pin from one two three four five six to just one two three four. And we'll press enter, and now we successfully changed the pin code. All right, so now we're ready to self-sign the certificate. Now, up to this point, I've been trying to keep you audio and listeners in mind by narrating all of the commands I'm using so you can kind of keep up. And of course, again, you can find a list of those commands over in the show notes. But this next command for self-signing the certificate is just really long and cumbersome and saying it out loud just isn't really gonna work. Um, so I'm gonna go ahead and just paste it into my terminal. But essentially what we're doing is self-signing the public certificate that we've created. And it's gonna verify that pin and self-sign the certificate. Now that I've done that, we can import the certificate by using the command yubico piv tool tac a import certificate tac s 9a tac i cert.pem. And now we've imported that certificate. Uh, at this point, the YubiKey is provisioned. So we have an SSH key that we've generated, we've signed, and we and it is on the YubiKey. So we are essentially, we're done. We have done all the configuration we need to do to the YubiKey. So the next part of this is going to be how we set the computer up to use the YubiKey to authenticate into SSH. We've set up our YubiKey and the certificate to work correctly with SSH. Now we are going to set the computer up to talk to the YubiKey to tell it to look for the SSH certificate inside of the YubiKey. So the first thing we need to do is we need to extract the public key off of the YubiKey. So to do that, we're going to open up a terminal and we are going to type SSH keygen tac d and it's going to look for the OpenSC provider. Now, this is going to be different depending on your distro. In the case of Ubuntu, which is what we're using here, it's going to be in slash user, slash lib, slash x86, underscore 64 dash Linux dash GNU, slash OpenSC dash PKCS11.so. That is the file that references our YubiKey. And when we enter that, what is going to spit out is our public key for the YubiKey. So this is the key that we're gonna copy with no spaces and no extra lines. 
and we're going to place that into our server. And that's what we're going to use. Now the next thing we need to do is configure our SSH client to look at the YubiKey. So to do that, we're going to go into the Etsy directory and go into the SSH directory and look at the SSH config. We're going to open the SSH configuration and at the very, very bottom, we are going to add a new line and we are going to say pkcs11 provider space user space lib space x86 underscore 64 dash linux dash gnu slash open sc dash pkcs 11.so and this is going to tell the ssh client when you're establishing an ssh connection look for this look at the yubikey to to, to see if, if a valid key exists. So let's go ahead and try to authenticate into a server. Now you'll notice, you'll see, you'll see this line pop up that when we try to authenticate into a server, no such identity, home noah.ssh id, no such file or directory. Basically that's saying that this YubiKey doesn't contain a valid certificate and thus it's prompting us for a password. So let me pull out this YubiKey that we were using to configure and plug in my own YubiKey that I use. And I'll run that same command with a different user. And now instead of being prompted for a password, I get prompted for my YubiKey PIN. So I'm gonna enter that and Boom, I'm authenticated into the server. So now our system is working, is set up to work properly with, S, with the SSH client pointing towards the YubiKey and the YubiKey uh, being used for SSH authentication. Before I wrap up, I just want to go over uh, a couple possible troubleshooting things that you might want to look into if you have problems while you're running through this. The first uh, thing is verifying that the smart card interface is in fact enabled and that U2F is not enabled. There's a little bit of a bug um, with the system in that you can't have both of them enabled at the same time without making some modifications to the system. We need a tool to verify that, and it's called the YubiKey Neo Manager. So we can add, we can install that by typing sudo apt-get install YubiKey Neo Manager. And again, I'm going to append attack Y to the end of that. We're going to wait for that to install. All right, so it says no device found because we haven't inserted this. So we're gonna insert a, a YubiKey. And you see here, it, it says change connection mode. And right now I have one-time password and CCID. Now I found out that if I enable UTF, CCID stops working. And I've emailed Yubico about this and they gave me a solution. The solution was to modify some files on the system. I don't use U2F that often, so I just disabled UTF. Um, but you need to have CCID. This is the smart card interface and that has to be enabled for this to work. And if you don't want to make those modifications of the system, then U2F has to be disabled. And I'll post the answer that Yubico sent me in the show notes if you're interested in having all three enabled. 
So that's basically it to, to set the system up to use the YubiKey. Now, on all of uh, on, on additional systems, as, as you go to use uh, the YubiKey, all you have to do is set up your SSH config to point to that OpenSC provider, uh, and you'll be able to use your YubiKey. On Ubuntu, again, it's in that user slash lib slash x84 underscore 64 dash Linux dash GNU slash OpenSC dash PKCS11.so. Um, on Ubuntu 32-bit, it's slash users slash lib slash i386 dash Linux dash GNU slash OpenSC dash PKCS11.so. And on Arch, it's slash user slash lib slash OpenSC dash PKCS11.so. So hopefully you found that interesting. Hopefully you'll have a chance to go out. Anyone that has them, uh, the YubiKey, you'll have a chance to configure it to use it as, for SSH. It has totally changed the way that I manage servers, makes my life a whole lot easier, and hopefully it'll make yours easier as well. So, no, I noticed sort of uh, for the audience's benefit, that was rather Ubuntu-specific, but as a Fedora and Red Hat user yourself, have you considered using like some of the PAM authentication methods that are a little more distro-agnostic but then rely on PAM? Yeah, so um, first of all, the, the, the video that I showed actually works on all of the distros. Um, it will work on, I use it on, on, on Ubuntu, I use it on Arch, I've used it on Fedora. The, the problem with uh, uh, Fedora is, because I use Fedora so often, I don't make notes to myself on, on where locations of files yeah. are, because I just <laughs> I happen to know where they are. Yeah. Um, and so, but if you look in the show notes, I've listed the, uh, the, the location for the open, uh, the PKCS 11 provider is listed inside the show notes, and, and, and if you want to set it up to work uh, with Fedora. Now, PAM is an interesting uh, way of authenticating. Essentially, what PAM does is you tell the server, when somebody wants to SSH in, I want you to look at this server out here and decide if they should be able to authenticate in based on the one-time password that they generate. So when I go to SSH into a server, I would stick my YubiKey in and I would just press the button and it will generate my SSH password is a one-time password. Yeah. Now that's very, that's very secure and it's a great way to do things, but it does, it does rely on the fact that Yubico servers have to be functioning and available. Right. And if there's any sort of network connectivity issue between your server and their server... Which might like, be why so you're for, logging in. I mean, who knows what... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, 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 if I'm SSHing into a server... For, with, I, you know, for Windows people, you won't understand this, but for us Linux people, once we set the server up, we don't touch it again. Yeah, unless you got to so install an update, which you might even do remotely through the uh, Red Hat Enterprise administration right. system. You don't right. really log so, into it very yeah. often. If I'm SSHing in, I'm fixing something to begin with. Right. That's the last time I want to be going, oh, well, now I have to troubleshoot PAM because this server, it, the internet's not working, or maybe that's why I'm getting, like you said, why I'm getting it into it for the into the first place, yeah. and because I disable password authentications, if Pam doesn't work, if Pam doesn't work, I, I'm really hosed. Um, so I would, I, I that's why I don't particularly prefer Pam, but it is a great option, especially if you've already spent the money on a YubiKey standard or a YubiKey Edge. Uh, then you can you can use those to authenticate with Pam. Now I did look into it while the video was playing. U2F will not, uh, the U2F FIDO will not work with anything other than U2F. It is only it is U2F only. So you can't use it with one time password. You can't use it with static password. Um, it is just YouTube. Do you see uh, Tom uh, Racing's question in the chat room about modifying SH, SSH underscore config versus SHD underscore config in the video? He uh, says, nope. uh, he said you modified SSH config, not the SSHD config. So, of course, right. SSH config would be the client settings, and SSHD config would be the server settings. 
Right. I have not changed anything in SSHD. The only thing that gets done on the server is in the authorized key files in the home directory. So if you if you when you're when you're sitting at the server, um, go into your home directory, go over to the uh, the hidden folder .ssh inside your home directory yeah. and create a file called authorized keys, and paste that. What I pasted into that gedit document, uh, you can paste that into that authorized key files, and yeah. that's all the configuration all the that's needed at the server level. Now, here's what's even better: if you're using DigitalOcean. They actually have a UI for this. You click on the add SSH key, paste that, that text block into DigitalOcean, and now when you provision a new DigitalOcean droplet, you just get a button that says YubiKey. And you click on YubiKey, and when you spin up your DigitalOcean mm. droplet, you get uh, your, you, that SSH key is automatically added in. Nice. Nice. Mm -hmm. So uh, all the commands for uh, most of this are all in the show notes, as well as additional links and resources and commands for Arch and Fedora are in the show notes. And uh, for the Patreons over at patreon.com slash today, those of you who are helping support the overall Jupiter Broadcasting Network, I'm going to make Noah's video available to you uh, so you can rewatch that. And so you just go to patreon.com slash today and look at the activity feed if you want to rewatch Noah's video and recapture all of that. But don't worry, the commands for those of you who just watch this or you can just replay it in the show are available in the show notes. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, look for episode, uh, what is it, 373 we're on right now, and uh, then you see everything Noah has lined out there, including a link to Amazon to get the micro and other ones. I think I'm going to pick up the micro. I've got this guy. <clears throat> but I really like the idea. I've got plenty of USB ports on the Bonobo. I like the idea of just, you know what, I'm just going to, this, I have a USB port over here I never, ever, ever use. I'm just going to dedicate that to the YubiKey. So there is, there is a funny, there is a funny, uh, there is a funny side effect to having the the nanos, and that is that when you touch them, it does the one-time password yes, generation. Yeah, it well, spits it in because it is so close to the edge of the <laughs> because it is so close to the edge of the computer. If you pick up a laptop, uh, oftentimes you'll bump it. And when yeah. Chris was configuring my laptop, like numerous times, he would bump it and go, "Ah, oh, damn it! What's yeah, what is true. all these numbers or whatever?" Yeah, I wouldn't Red put hat? it in that USB key. I wouldn't put it in that USB port that you had it in. Red Hat, well, the, the, on that particular laptop, yeah, yeah. that's the only one. I know. I know. The, uh, the uh, Red Hat plays poker with it. Whoever gets the highest value is spit into the chat room. Like once somebody bumps it, and everyone they put else in the touches IRC. the They play in the IRC. Yeah, yeah, and they play poker with it. Who has the highest? <laughs> that's great. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. All right, so all that's over there. And plus, uh, we'd love to hear your SSH tricks to make it more secure and more automated. Go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com and leave a comment in the feedback for in the feedback thread. Or if you have a project you want to really draw attention to, you can submit it as its own independent link to that subreddit. I'd love to see it because I'm always looking for new ideas. Linuxactionshow.reddit.com. But Noah, then thank you very much for doing all of that legwork. Uh, that was some great stuff, and I appreciate you getting all that recorded down for us. Go over there and try it out yourself you guys we'd love to hear your feedback but that is the linux action show's look at using the yubikey Uh, that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast, and we have a bunch of feedback to get to this week. But before we go, I want to just take a minute and talk about somebody who we don't often talk about in Linux Action Show, but I actually think would be perfect for the audience, and that's Linux Academy. Uh, they often sponsor the Linux Unplugged, Unplugged program, but we had such shenanigans going down in episode 100 that uh, I moved them here to Linux Action Show to give a chance to talk to a different audience. Uh, Linux Academy is a platform for learning about Linux and this technology around Linux built by people that are truly enthusiastic about Linux. Uh, sort of like the Linux Action Show is brought to you by people who truly care about Linux, and so that makes the difference than when like somebody at CNET or Engadget writes about Linux or The Verge. They write about Linux with this sort of detached perspective. And that also uh, translates in education. Like online, you can go to places that talk about how to fix your kitchen sink or how to have the perfect After Effects project or how to edit something in Final Cut and how to set up an Apache server. Well, isn't that great? It seems like you're getting a lot for, your value for money, a lot of value for your money because you can take all these 
these coursewares. But the reality is, you're going shallow. And, and you know this. That's why Linux Academy has been set up. They're built by people that truly are enthusiastic and passionate about Linux and open source. They combine their powers together with educators and developers to make the Linux Academy platform. They have over 1,600 courses you can take, all based on Linux. They have seven plus distributions you can choose from. The, when you choose the distribution, it automatically adjusts the courseware and all of the virtual servers to match that distro. So say you want to learn on Red Hat, or say you want to learn on Ubuntu or Debian. When you choose Debian, the virtual machines and the courseware all reflect that. They have scenario-based labs, so that way you can go deploy something like Nginx or MySQL or Postgres or set up a backup system or learn how to use Cron in a scenario-based lab, so that way when you go actually work with it in production, it's not the first time you've ever done this. It gives you confidence. And instructor help is available, so that way if you get to a rough spot, somebody can help you. They also have a very active community. They have some of the best courseware on Docker. They just refreshed their courseware on OpenStack. And if you're going down the Red Hat courseware direction, they definitely have the best resources on that. And one of the things I love is when you're in between courses, they have these nuggets. Nuggets are single how-tos that walk you through doing specific tasks. They're about two to 60 minutes long, and they're really, really awesome. And like sometimes they're like, you know, how to set up just a backup using Bash, how to manage KVM, how to do something on AWS. And it's just, we're going to deep dive on this thing, which is perfect when you're in between courseware. Linux Academy is what I want you to check out, but I want you to get our special discount. Go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. That's the 33% discount we give to the unplugged audience. Since I didn't get a chance to mention it to them, I'm going to give this opportunity to you guys. I don't remember the last time we've mentioned Linux Academy, but they really are a perfect fit for the Linux Action Show audience. So go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You'll get the 33% discount. You can check them out for a little bit and see if they're a good fit for you and see what you think when you're not. And you know what? 33%, that's nothing to sneeze at. Both Noah and I are members. I've been a member since before they were a sponsor because I wanted to check them out. And Noah, you probably subscribed right about when they became a sponsor. Have you been able to check them out? What do you think? Yeah, actually, I, I think I was, I think I actually was with them a little bit before they were a sponsor because I had to redo. No, I know what I remember what it was. It was right before Rel Seven came out. I was, uh, I needed to go do uh, to. I need what I wanted was I wanted to get trained on Rel Seven, but I didn't want like the whole course. I just wanted the what's new from rel 6 to rel 7 Now at that time, they didn't have the little snippets that they have now because now they actually cater to that. At that time, it was just they, they had a rel 7 course, but what I was able to do is I could skip through it. Um, whereas my previous training experience was I actually went to a Red Hat training center, sat down for a week-long course, nine hours a day, and then the parts I wasn't interested in, I just browsed Facebook while I waited for him to get through that. Um, now I can then I could just skip through it and it was it was great I got exactly hmm. what I needed yeah. for a fraction of the price that it yeah. would have cost me for the training alone much less the travel the hotel expense yeah all that kind of thing yeah and they have some really good uh, s system setup if you're really busy and you only have a certain amount of time available they can custom build courseware around that linuxacademy.com/unplugged I'm glad I finally get a chance to, again to mention them to you guys because not all of you listen to Linux Unplugged and I think this is a really good resource for the Linux community linuxacademy.com/unplugged now no let's get into our our first feedback it comes from Cloud E. He's got a SIP problem. He says, currently building a product service flow system to connect, manage, and support an online product for tiered clients that are located in many locations. Hmm. Fascinating. He says, I'm building a front end in Mod X. Would building from scratch a back-end database option for CRM, supporting accounting, you know, all this kind of stuff, allow for a time with a database already in place? He wants to know if maybe he can build the ultimate all-together solution. Or should he do an end-to-end -end platform like things like Zoho connect to a web front end to manage the client product? Or is there maybe an open source platform that takes care of all of this for him that he wouldn't have to roll? He would love to have more information. Any questions that anything we can answer would be greatly appreciated. Let him know. Cloud E. Noah, you've got to be digging into this stuff, right? I, 
Yeah, I did. I actually I got into it with them the other night in the mumble room. We batted around for probably a good forty five minutes, and I I couldn't offer him uh, offer him any real help once you know uh, that uh, that he wasn't already aware of. Um, but so he, he said, you know, is there anywhere else that I can go for help? And I said, well, we can throw it in, in the feedback. You can send it in as a feedback, yeah. and, and we can talk about it. He wants so something basically, right? If stuff. I'm understanding, he wants he wants to be able to tie in like. Uh, the whole the whole management system with the phone system and, and be able to pull information from each system, right? He's kind of looking for some system that yes. combines all of it. Right. Yeah, that ties everything in and allows him to access one database from the other database and cross-reference one database to the it's other. It's a massive and, system. And like right. And, and so uh, and I, that, is, that is not my area of expertise. If you wanted help setting the servers up to do that, I'd <laughs> be more than happy to help. But, uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's a little bit of, uh, outside if of my area of expertise. If somebody out there knows some sort of open source system that offers a platform like this, uh, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. You want to take uh, Sealess Wolf or Wolf or whatever here? Yes. Yes, I do. That is the, the Fedora the one, right? enthusiast one, which sounds about like you, Noah, if i got to be yeah. honest with you. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. He goes, hello, feather, fellow enthusiasts. So I was listening to the most recent episode of Linux Unplugged where I noticed a mention that not many in the audience had tried Fedora 22. Since I'm not able to join the live, I thought I would share my experience via email. I have used Fedora for my work since Fedora 20, as Fedora and Red Hat are the only supported Linux distros by my employer, whose names I won't mention, but it's big and blue. Mm. After Fedora 20, I bought an SSD for my ThinkPad and did a clean Fedora 21 install. From Fedora 21, I fed it up to, <laughs> to Fedora 22 after watching the Fedora 22 review on last. I have actually not had any issues so far. Actually, everything has worked pretty well out of the box. It works better than it did on Fedora 21. I know that Fedora gets a lot of slack, but I have used it for years now in production environment as my desktop workstation and never had any issues that have prevented me from working. I use GNOME as my primary desktop environment. I have Cinnamon installed in in case GNOME crafts itself, I have Fetty installed and make Fedora usable. Yes, I agree with Chris. It's necessary, but it's available and easy, and I see no issues there. And a few GNOME extensions to make it all suit my workflow, but nothing major. To me, Fedora and Fetty makes an awesome distro and should be used by default. On my personal laptops, I have both Arch and Ubuntu as well as Fedora laptop. So I have something to switch around between. All I have to say is that I'm actually beginning to favor Fedora more and more as I use it every day. I have only good stuff to say about Fedora, and it's not without flaws, but we really do we but we really have a perfect Linux distro or a perfect OS for that matter. Love all the shows wouldn't get through the week uh, and the commutes without them. Um, so uh, basically, I thought that uh, that that uh, that Silas did a really good job of summing up my uh, my take on on Fedora or my perception of Fedora, um, with the exception of him thinking that you need that nonsense to make. Fedora I agree. No, I, I think don't. I still think that you don't need it. Wrong, sir. Audience disagrees <sighs> with you. The audience that's official. That that makes a fact right there. Yeah. All right, I'm going to yeah. read in Esther's. I think is how you say this next one. What do you think Esther? Esther? Probably. Audience yeah. disagreed with you on barbecue. Really? Really, we're going there right now? Really? <laughs> you know, there's. A, can you hear the airplanes outside? Can you hear those? 
yeah. Yeah, there's a fly in here at the studio. It's great for oh, uh, recording really? things. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, hey, guys. Great uh, great show. Last does a great job keeping me up to date on all things Linux. I know you guys like all things Linux. And I thought maybe you'd be interested in this experiment that I ran. I work at a small public library, and I provide technical service to the library and serve on a splat, a special project library action team for the state of Idaho. The typical user environment for public access computers at libraries is Windows. I recently was able to test a Linux environment on two public access machines at my library. My biggest concern in doing this was the public pushback or even outright rejection. I was pleasantly surprised by the results, and it convinced me that there were at least some users at tipping points, and underlying OSs may not actually matter. I did run a few hiccups, however, but overall, the two machines were working quite well. I detailed everything on the Splat blog. There's a lot of great tech stuff happening at libraries. We keep hearing that, actually. And the most exciting stuff is Linux-based or open source. There's still a lot of work to be done, but I'm hopeful that in this time, Linux can be accepted more widely. I would be happy to talk more about this, so feel free to contact me. Well, Esther, we invite you to join us for Linux Unplugged. We do that show on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com, jupiterbroadcasting.com, slash calendar to get that converted in your local time zone. Now, here's a heads up. In, like... The week during the week of OSCON, so the week of uh, July 22nd, we're going to record Linux Unplugged on a Monday. So if you want to join us, we have an open virtual lug. It's a mumble room. Mumble is an open source, like IRC for your voice. And we have an open mumble room. We just check your mic, and then you can come on the show and join our virtual lug and uh, hang out and talk with us. So, Esther, I would love to hear more about that specifically because we keep getting mm-hmm. like. Um, like these little like hints, like man, there's big stuff happening in libraries, but um, bump, and we're like, yeah, okay, well, onesie twosie, that's really interesting, but hey, come join us and tell us about it. So Esther, I challenge you, join us for Linux Unplugged, and just go to jblive.tv, <laughs> go into the chat room, do bang mumble, you get the mumble server address, you go to the calendar page, you get the live time. Bob's your uncle. Noah, do you have anything to add? No, uh, last piece of feedback comes in from Joshua Double, uh, Joshua W, and I'm going to just grab the meat of this because it's a little long. Um, basically, Josh was helping his neighbor, and he says, I spent the entire weekend helping them set up their machines. I only had to build a single driver in DKMS uh, for a little Wi-Fi dongle that they had, okay. uh, the Comcast switch, the Ethernet that it was connected to in their home. One of their family members, an elderly man who had a lot of difficulty using his computer, I'd always dreaded trying to help him because there was <laughs> a little communication barrier between us, and it's hard to explain something when I take basic computer use, usability for granted. I walked in to help him get his Wi-Fi today, kernel updated, and had to manually rebuild the driver. He asked me a question, then he asked me how long it took to learn all of this stuff. When I told him it took me a little, little over three years with learning and tinkering things, he then pointed to a little yellow book of Windows Vista for dummies and asked if there was anything like that for Linux. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, he had some Amazon shopping to do to see if he could find something similar. Uh, for that, basically, what I would tell anyone, if you're looking for a really good book uh, for, for Linux that'll give you the just the, the straight no-nonsense through, it's a little dry, but I would recommend the Linux Bible. Uh, if you're still into books, which is this uh, old antiquated version of a PDF, that's a really great one that uh, it really it really takes everything. You can get everything from, I want to learn every little bit about Linux to how do I actually use Linux on a daily basis and mm-hmm. then kind of everything in between. And the chapters are really organized in that you, you don't have to read one to get something out of the other ones. Nice. The Linux Bible looks like it's a popular one in the chat room, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Noah, that's a great one. If you want to give us your feedback, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And then just choose Linux Action Show from the dropdown or go to linuxactionshow.reddit.com. There'll be a feedback thread. Or you can start your own thread if you feel like a boss. Just start it over there. Uh, also, join us live, won't you? JBLive.tv. We do this here show Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific, which 
probably I could tell you all the different time zones, but jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar has that. No, if I wanted to say, hey, check out Noah throughout the week, see maybe what his day job is, what website, what, what hot tip would I give people? Yeah, you would send them over to Ultaspeed. So that's uh, ultaspeed.com. That's where I do my daily job. We do. Op- we are an open source company. Um, we provide front end support as well as back end support for uh, small to medium sized businesses uh, looking for IT support. And we do that all using open source software, all using Linux. Uh, and it works out pretty well so far. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of times some of the interesting things they're working on end up making it a show here, <laughs> making it into the topics yeah, yeah. here. Uh, you know what? I'll give a plug uh, for uh, just a just a small thing we're doing. Uh, to celebrate episode 100 of Linux Unplugged, we're just running a shirt like we sometimes do. Teespring.com slash LUP100. We're not making a big deal about it, but it is a fun shirt. And just to celebrate our virtual lug, we really have a great community around the show. Uh, I, if you've ever been to an actual lug, uh, we have a lug that's bigger than actual lugs now. I mean, we have a seriously awesome virtual lug, so we wanted to put a shirt together at teespring.com slash LUP100. We have a couple of different colors, and uh, we also have it available in long sleeve, and it's going to be available for nine more days, and we're not making a big push. Uh, we're pretty much selling it at cost. See, it's like 19 bucks for the shirt, because uh, we didn't want you to have to pay a whole bunch for shipping. But it's a neat way to celebrate the 100th week of a, of a show that's a yet another Linux open source podcast that uh, I think people really love. teespring.com slash lup one. Hundred and of course, doing Linux Unplugged on Tuesdays over on Jupiter Broadcasting. Noah, is there anything else we want to cover this week? I think we hit it all and then some. Nice, buddy. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. We'll see you right back here next week. So I got a, I got a couple of goodies that uh, I want to share with you that I think are mm-hmm. interesting. Uh, this one okay. I'm testing for like a really bulletproof, like if somebody wants to get on Mumble or, or something like that. It is, I don't know how well you can see this, but it is a USB yep. device that is a microphone, but it's actually like a uh, cardioid, like a full-on uh, compact microphone. It actually gets pretty decent reviews. So it's way, 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 way better than like, you know, people that use like their built-in laptop microphone or their mm-hmm, webcam mm-hmm. mic. And all it does, mm-hmm. and so I, I actually have a, I actually have a keyboard too that has a USB port on the keyboard. I have a Logitech keyboard that has a, a USB bus on it. Yeah. So I'm right. So you take this. It's a little, it's a little microphone, and it has, a, so it can rotate, and it also, uh, you can hook up. Uh, so it's, it's got yeah. USB on one end. I There's, might have one of those. Who makes that? And how much is it? Uh, it's, it's CAD makes it. Uh, oh, okay. Cat no, audio. It's a U9 USB mic, and it's like nine dollars or something like that. And it does a 50 wow. hertz to 18 kilohertz. It's omnidirectional, 16 bit, 44 kilohertz audio, and it also has a 3.5 millimeter jack on the back, so you could hook up like an audio in. It can also be an audio in device. So not only is it does it have a pretty good cap mic on it, but it also has an audio in jack, so you could still do regular. You could still just use it as a regular yeah. sound card too. So I got this as, as thinking that maybe, and it even has a little bit of a shock mount to absorb mm-hmm. shock uh, from the uh, from the desk. So I thought maybe I'd get mm-hmm. this as a last minute mumble room recommendation test kind of a thing. Yeah. So that's a goodie number one that I'll be then. Uh, <clears throat> well, an XLR cable. I just went into my Amazon cart. XLR cable, XLR super cable. exciting. Oh, welcome to yeah. studio life, everybody. An XLR cable. Uh, and then this one is the one I'm most excited about. And I think maybe you you might have one of these, or you might want to get one of these. I don't know. Uh, it nope. is a uh, cough drop, you know. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. This is yeah, uh, I actually I've looked at those numerous times, and I've recommended them to you numerous times, and you kept shooting me down because you're like it's not built into the mic base. Because well, for whatever reason, you really want to build. I do because they but the, those ones are too expensive, so I just gave up. 
because uh, this one's like uh, 16 17 dollars and those ones are like 200 dollars so hmm. oh are we gonna install this right now this is so exciting. I was thinking about it yeah although I don't yeah, know if I have a long so. enough cable see I wanted to put it I see I specific I specific well see that one is that one maybe I specifically now that after I got I got one that you can either use as a button or as a foot pedal and now that yeah. I'm thinking about yeah. it I want the foot pedal because okay. there's too much S on this desk, but uh, yeah. I'll see. So you it chat, so for, much you chat with the people for a bit, and then I'll see if I can get it hooked up. So uh, here we go. So I have, uh, so for demonstration purposes, I have it up on the table, so that way I can. Um, well, I guess I guess it works in one sense because you can hear me because I haven't <laughs> I haven't even tested it. So I guess this part works. Uh, so uh, the idea here is, and by the way, while we're doing all this, I'm still installing updates on my Arch rig. I figured why not do a complete system much, upgrade before the uh, show starts. What's that? What? Why? What the fact no. that this is no? Working? You said you said it's you said it's, it, it, it obviously it works because you guys can hear me. All right, so the idea is this will be a pedal eventually, but the idea is you know like I've gotten people have just really been chewing me a, a new one for every single fucking thing I do these days. You know every time I ring the bell, every time I clear my throat, every time I do anything. So I thought, well, okay, I, I can understand the clearing the throat thing, but there's not going to I mean I have a window that's blowing in air from the outside. That's not going to change. I'm not going to stop clearing my throat. So I have this cough. This it's called a cough drop, and the idea is that I could just push this button. Well, it'll be a foot trigger and it's an instant mute and this is particularly nice for me because our mixer is totally digital there's no physical button for me to press to mute myself so I can just and there's no pop either which is great it's nice and silent it, it has a oh, hold on a second push that again and talk obviously so is there another mic open yeah, is there yeah, another mic? Yeah, open? the other room mic is open. Yeah, yeah. Here, I'll okay. mute that. Oh, yeah. I was gonna yeah. say because it's it's not a mute then. It's a very 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 no very, no no. Very uh, the second mic's on just so that way when I got okay. up you could hear me so that way you knew what I was yeah. futzing around with. Yeah. Uh, so here now here I'll do it with the other mic off so that way you can hear. It. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. And how does it sound when I come back? Does it sound okay when I come back? Uh, see now mute again. Talk. Nope, yeah, yeah, it's totally, totally silent. That's and awesome. now I'm back, yeah. So I'm going to say something. Uh, I hope this goes in the outtakes because I mean it. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about it. If somebody wants to rent me an RV, I would like to rent your RV. I don't care where, well, I do care a little bit. But I, you know what? I thought about this, and I think this show, I was thinking, no, I need to get to Grand Forks, North Dakota. But you know what I'd really like to do is I'd like to drive to Grand Now, I know I looked at the drive. That's crazy, but if I could no, do shows, it's not. it's not, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> if I could do shows, especially if I could do shows the whole way, the thing mm -hmm. is, is there is no way in hell I'm going to get, so if I buy an RV, this is who I am, if I buy an RV, it's going to be like a $300,000 RV minimum, like, right? Let's be at honest. Least, at least you're honest. <laughs> yeah, right? Because, like, I'm not going to buy shit, right? Yeah, but if I could right. just rent something or borrow something... Yeah. Then I don't care because I didn't pay for it. I'm just using it for a little bit. It could, in fact, if it's a piece of crap, that kind of adds to the story a little bit. Like, oh, I broke down, and now yeah, I'm here it stuck. Really does. In, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, if anybody out there has an RV, they want to rent the Linux Action Show. Uh, email Angela <laughs> at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Oh, great, great. Yeah, that's you, you just gained yourself some real points there. Not only, not only do you want to spend money on renting an RV, no, she's all down for it. She's down for it. She'd way rather I rent one than buy one because that's, oh, that's where i'm cool. at i'm like I, i'm like i'm like Man. okay here's what you sound like now you sound like my wife hey guess what i saved you 350 dollars today I thought, how'd you do that well i went to jc Penney's and they had a sale for 50 percent off and so about 700 dollars <laughs> worth of stuff and yeah. it was 350 dollars off like, no no you spent yeah. 400 no so no, no, I saved no here, here's here's my no. question would you rather we spend fourteen thousand dollars on an air conditioner <laughs> for the whole studio or i get an yeah. rv 
Me, personally? No, I don't know. I just, oh, I just, we were fun. <laughs> I do need an office lackey. Wes, are you watching, by the way? Because to be honest, speaking of lackey, but Wes, if you're watching, I'd like to have you join me on Tuesday again. I don't know if you're watching by chance, but that would be really fun. I do need an office Ooh. lackey, Jordan. If you're in my... Are you, okay, let me just say this. If you are in the... If you are within like 40 miles of the Arlington, Washington area, please come here and work with me. <laughs> yeah, we need help. Uh, we need we need more people in here doing stuff. Uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be recording a lot of shows to prepare for OSCON and LinuxCon, and Alan's going on trips, and it's going to be very, very, very busy. And so if you have some free time over the summer and you're in our area, we could definitely use the help. We could use help uh, in studio just for co-hosting, like Tech Talk Today and Linux Unplugged, but we could also use help for technical issues, um, file storage issues, all the kind of stuff that I know how to handle, but just don't have time for it.